Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Wednesday, December 30th, 2009. Oh man, do I completely feel unprepared for today's program. <laughs> it, could, it could be creeping decrepitude. <sighs> you ever... Ay, ay, ay. You ever have those times when you, you know what you need to do and, well... Ah. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And if you hear shuffling papers in the background, well, it, uh, it has to do with the fact that today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, I just, I feel... <laughs> I, I'm feeling verklempt. <laughs> the civil war was neither civil nor war. Discuss. Anyway, um, <sighs> I, 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 okay. <laughs> There's so many things I could be talking about here. So many ideas. And, um, and at some point you have to just say, okay, I'm going with this one and I can't go with that one. End of story. Get over it. And, uh, yeah, well, <sighs> I can't believe I went on the air like this. I am just getting old. I am. Anyway, <laughs> thank you for tuning in. <laughs> what? Uh, I just, I, I cannot believe my life right now. I just cannot believe my life right now. It's this one of those things where, you know, uh, it, I've got to do some serious apologetics today. And it's caused me to spend a bunch of time in some books I haven't looked at in a while, reviewing great apologetic arguments and great authors and writers uh, from years past, days gone by. And I kid you not, I got so engrossed in my, uh, in my program prep today that I completely <laughs> lost track of the time. You know, I put my nose in a book. It was like noon. I took my nose out of the book, and it was like, ah! <laughs> What happened to the time? Oh, man. And it wasn't even like a, a novel or anything like that. It's really dry stuff. Like, if we look at the historical grammatical method and uh, while looking at the bibliography test for the... Oh, my goodness. I am getting old. It's it's official. I'm old. I That's all there is to it. And, um, yeah, oh, well. Okay, today's program. Believe it or not, I have one. 
And uh, we got some great, crazy stuff today, too. Okay, let's see here. I've got a couple of emails I want to read uh, from Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley. Uh, again, a man for whom I have the deepest respect. And, uh, you know, great Christ-centered uh, preacher and pastor. And uh, those who happen to be uh, in his uh, care there in Great Britain are, I consider them to be fortunate people. And, uh, and then, okay, we've got out of, uh, out of, uh, this is out of Denmark. Um, I think this is out of Denmark. Uh, the headline reads Obama greater than Jesus. We got to talk about that. <sighs> By the way, um, just in case you're wondering, no, I don't think Obama's <clears throat> better than Jesus. And, um, I've got bad news for the Obamaites out there is that Obama is actually human and um, like everybody else on the planet, someday, um, you know, he's going to crump just like I'm going to crump and you're going to crump. And, and, you know, I, and, you know, I hope that uh, in his lifetime, he experiences repentance and the forgiveness of sins and may God grant him a long life and all that kind of stuff. But the, he's not greater than Jesus. Um, because, um, well, Jesus is, uh, he, he's the only human being to actually die and rise again from the dead. Um, and, uh, and he's more than just a human, by the way. He's uh, the God-man. Okay, so I've got a, a couple of uh, things here with uh, Pastor, uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. got this editorial. And, oh, what a treat we have for you folks. Patricia King. She's put three videos up at her Extreme Prophetic website, all having to do with her predictions for 2010. Uh, God, this Patricia King is the gift that keeps on giving. You got to give her credit. Um, I mean, she's a complete nut and a complete charlatan. But that being the case, I mean, it makes for great radio. And here's the fun part about it is, is that what we're going to do is we're going to note, you know, on this edition of Fighting for the Faith, the things that apparently God told her were coming in 2010. And this gives us the ability to objectively verify whether or not it is God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to this woman, which I severely, highly, uh, it, in, in fact, you have a, the chances of Patricia King actually hearing from the one true God and being that, that, that God of the scriptures being the source of her uh, predictions, uh, you, the, the chances of that actually being true are the same chances that you have of personally walking to the moon. Um, so it, not that it's I mean, completely outside of the realm of possibility, but um, highly un, improbable, if you would. So we've got that. We've got more from uh, 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 Bishop Spong that he, uh, from his appearance on Doug Paget's radio program. I'm this is uh, I got to tell you, it's complete gold, just gold. Why? Not because what he said was true, but because it just lays bare uh, the complete, absolute, vapid, shallow, completely gone uh, presuppositions of liberalism. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I would say by extension, the emergent church, because the emergent church is really, truly, Liberalism 2.0. It's still liberalism, but there's been some new features added, some uh, an upgrade in the software, if you would. And uh, and uh, the fun part about uh, listening to Bishop Spong is is that you get a chance to look at kind of like one of the old dinosaur, true-blooded uh, modernist liberals. 
And uh, we'll be taking a listen to some of the things he has to say. And, of course, taking the time to correct Bishop Spong with real scholarship. And uh, we <laughs> something apparently he doesn't actually understand or know about. And then our sermon review today uh, from Pastor Chris Songson. It's a Christmas sermon. It's about the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Uh, Pastor Chris Songson of South Hills Community Church in Corona, California, who I think really needs to step down from the uh, pulpit and uh, pursue his um, career as a motivational speaker. I mean, he sure can motivate people. He sure is entertaining, and he sure doesn't know how to handle God's Word. But uh, that'll be our sermon review uh, in hour number two today, or whenever we get to it. Um, although I have yet, I, it, I, when was the last time I ever started a sermon re, re, uh, review prior to the, the second break? I, yeah, I can't remember a time and anyway. So we got plenty of stuff to talk about today. You know, it was really funny. I was talking to my daughters and they were saying, dad, 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 you really need to have a, a, a contest, a, a poll or something. And, 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 an award that you hand out for the, you know, the, the, the heretic of the year award or, or, and, and uh, Faith, she said, Dad, maybe you can have an award for the pastor that's least improved. <laughs> I'm so proud of them. Anyway, uh, okay. <sighs> now with that, <laughs> I'm telling you, I am just out of sorts today. Completely out of sorts. I might just, just turn off the microphone and go sit outside in the snow or something. Anyway. And you know what's funny? I, I've actually acclimated to the cold weather. I kid you not. It was like 30-something degrees, 31, 32 degrees outside today. And I'm thinking, dang, it's a warm day. It's nice outside. <laughs> okay, something has happened to me. I, maybe I've lost my mind. All right, uh, moving along, moving along. We're going to dive into the program proper. So uh, let's uh, get to the email here. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, he writes, and by the way, this is his rebuttal, that we've been having an ongoing email, a dialogue, if you would. He emails me, I read his emails, and then we've been talking about this thing in Malaysia. Now, if you're not up to speed on what's going on in Malaysia, the, the, the officials, the government in Malaysia is apparently going to make a decision as to whether or not the word Allah can only be exclusively used by Muslims. And uh, we need to be praying for our Christian brothers and sisters in Malaysia. I mean, this you know the uh, the Muslim population there, um, let's just say persecuting the saints, and uh, it really it, it the situation there really is uh, heating up, and really it could be explosive over the next uh, couple of years. But the the Malaysian government apparently has held off making a decision until uh, tomorrow. So hopefully by this time tomorrow. We will hear from the Malaysian government whether or not they've forbidden the use of the word Allah uh, for and, and to only be used by uh, Muslims. You know, which if you know, in in my email exchanges, well, not email, but in uh, the emails that uh, Pastor Charmley has sent, he's kind of enlightened me as to what's going on here. That what we're dealing with is, uh, you know, the the word Allah in the Malaysian language is just the generic word for God. And, um, and so, you know, this, what's going on here actually could be really inhibiting for churches. And it's really the, it's really the Catholic church that has stepped forward to fight, uh, for, you know, they put forward the case that this is a word that needs to be used by anybody who wants to use it, that Allah is not a, a specific title. It's just a generic word. 
Now, I, I made the case in in a previous uh, program that this may not be a bad thing. Now, and the reason I said that is is because you know God being a generic term, um, it, it you know if if Christians are forced to use different terminology in Malaysia, it may not be a bad thing because it forces them to distinguish you know the Christian God from the God of Islam. And, um, and so, you know, that's kind of where we left off in this, in this dialogue with uh, Pastor Charmley. Now, let me, let me, before I read his email, defend myself in this sense. Um, one of the things that you, if you've listened to this program, one of the things you know about me is I'm an entrepreneur and entrepreneurs have this, have brain damage. And that's probably the best way of putting it. Um, the, the personality disorder that causes them to, you know, they're not alive unless they're risking everything. Um, although I really am looking forward to not ever doing that again. Um, but anyway, unless they're risking, you know, their it, it, everything in order to build something, in order to create something, they uh, uh, um, entrepreneurs see opportunities um, in completely uh, bankrupt, bad, terrible situations. Uh, real true entrepreneurs, when the market tanks, uh, then they'll sit there and go, oh, this is the worst thing ever. They go, oh, wow, look at all these uh, companies I can buy at a bargain. Yeah, that's you, you understand that's how entrepreneurs think. So that being the case, yes, this is a terrible situation. Yes, our Christian brothers and sisters are being persecuted in Malaysia. We need to be praying for them. That being the case, there still really may be an opportunity here. And even if the Malaysian government comes down against the expansive use of the word Allah, okay? And why? Because it does give the Christians an opportunity to uh, distinguish, if you would. But Pastor Charmley has taken issue with with what I put forward. And here's uh, Pastor Charmley's email. He says, Dear Chris, I'm afraid I must disagree with you about the business with Allah and the Malaysian government. And you have a right to do so, Pastor Charmley, and I don't... I am not upset in the slightest that you have done this. I enjoy the exchange. He says, since it is the common and generic word for God in Malay, banning Christians from using it is equivalent to banning the use of the word God by Christians in an English-speaking context. Think about that. In making your argument that preventing Christians from using it would be a good thing, you used the word God over and over again. Yeah, actually, I did. I understand. Um Okay, he says, try not using the word God at all in the paragraph talking about God, and you will see how restrictive a ban on on Christians using Allah in Malay would be. And I agree. It would be restrictive. And, uh, you know, the fact that it's gone on into the 11th hour and that they delayed the, uh, you know, revealing what their ruling is, uh, at least up to the time when this broadcast is going out, it really shows and demonstrates, uh, you know, that in my mind, I don't, I don't have a lot of hope that the Malaysian government's going to say, "Oh yeah, everybody can use it, no problem." You know, I, I, I'm thinking, yeah, you because know, this is kind of a no-brainer. I, I, I think there's a high probability that Christians in Malaysia are going to end up being restricted this way. We continue. <clears throat> I hope I'm wrong. By the way, I, I have no prophetic abilities. I mean, I would love it if I woke up in the morning and it turns out the Malaysian government decided it's okay everybody can use the word he says and he says anyway he continues he says and remember this would require the malay bible to be revised completely yep you're right Twenty thousand bibles i think was one of the, you know i mean 
that would end up being destroyed. I mean, talk about loss of resource. He says, while Yahweh may be an acceptable substitute in many places, it cannot completely replace the word, especially in Bible translations. An uncommon generic would have have to be found probably by transliterating a foreign word into Malay characters, which is why I use the example of deity in English, which is, of course, really a Latin word. Every language needs to have a generic term for God, if only to allow for differentiation of Yahweh and Elohim in the Old Testament. Think of uh, of uh, Shekma and the differentiation of true God from false God. The English uh, God performs this function. In Malay, due to Muslim influence, it is the word Allah. Our Malay brothers can do more uh, without the word Allah than we can do without the word God. We ought to pray that they should be allowed to keep on using the word unless we really think we can do without the word God in English. You, you know, Pastor Charlie, you make a fine point. You make a fine point. And, and uh, my, my prayers do go out to our brothers and sisters in Malaysia. It's clear that this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg as far as the persecution that they're, that they're facing there. And you know, if, if it turns out that the Malaysian government forbids the use of the word Allah, unless it's referencing the God of Islam, then, um, then our Christian brothers and sisters have really only two options. The first option is to comply with the law and, uh, and rework uh, the language. Okay, and rework how they use their language. The reality is, is that if they go with that, uh, w- they go that route, then what will end up happening is, is that you will end up having a subculture using a different word for God, and it'll quickly be introduced into the language and adopted. It's not like languages are static. I mean, you and I both know this because, well, I live on the other side of the Atlantic than you do, and. The words that I use, um, even though they're technically English, there's, there, um, we've got words in the American vernacular that are not the same as in the English, uh, in the English vernacular. In fact, I've, I've even had people tell me that I don't actually speak English. I speak American. Um, and so, you know, although there's a lot of crossover, you, you understand what I'm saying. Languages are not static. And I always find it interesting how every year, what ends up happening is, is that, you know, as part of the year-end thing that goes on on television, not only do they have highlights of, you know, who died, what were the big news events and stuff like that, but uh, they, you know, they also they include segments as to which new words have been adopted into the dictionary uh, after, the, uh, after a particular year. And so um, what will end up happening is because languages are, are fluid anyway, um, that uh, that th- there will be a new word that will be quickly adopted into it, and you know over a period of time, you know it'll it'll change the language of Malay anyway, you know, and so that the, you know, some other generic word will come into play. Um, that's probably most likely what will happen. Now the other option is for uh, the, the Christians, our brothers and sisters in Malaysia, to become basically resistors and basically say on the grounds that. We, you know, that our, we have to obey God rather than men. We are not going to change uh, the way we, we talk about God, and we're going to continue doing this. And the Malaysian government will then have to decide what is going to be the punishment for those who refuse to comply with their new law. Think about it. Okay, you're, they're talking about criminalizing I mean, ultimately, that's all the governments can do, really, isn't it? When you pass a law, you're criminalizing a behavior. There, uh, you know, the fact that the Malaysian government at this point is considering criminalizing 
the anybody who would speak the word Allah in reference to the Christian God, that's huge. And so, um, you know, if if that's where they end up falling on this issue, and I hope that they don't. I really do hope that they don't. If our Christian brothers and sisters decide to go the route of, I would rather go to prison than uh, than uh, comply with this law, which I could see that there would be some who might think that's the conscious, would, that would be the way to go. Um, personally, I don't think that... I don't think that's really the the right ground to to draw a hard line on. I, languages are fluid, and uh, you know what'll end up happening is this thing will expand anyway. But anyway, that's my take on it. And as an entrepreneur, and understanding, completely confessing that being an entrepreneur causes me causes me to see uh, opportunities in bad situations, and it, and that being an entrepreneur is a form of brain damage. Um, that um, you know, I do think that you know there's opportunities here. And it may not it, – it, in the end, it may not be a bad thing. It, it Ultimately, as it plays out, I mean, this is absurd anyway. And uh, if if the Christians there can come up with a whimsical way of altering the language, um, you know, in compliance with the law, ultimately it will show the stupidity of their efforts anyway, at least the Malaysian government. All right. So that was email number one. Now, email number two. This one kind of opens up um, <clears throat> a whole world of opportunities here. Love this email. Uh, uh, also from Pastor Gervais, Nicholas Edward Charmley says, Now, I must take issue with you taking issue with the statement that the UK is supposed to be a Christian country. Okay, I got to read this all the way through. Okay, on a <laughs> previous edition of Fighting for the Faith, I talked about the fact that, you know, I don't think that the United Kingdom is a Christian country. Uh, because in the way I understand it, a Christian nation is is a nation where Jesus Christ is king, right? Um, anyway, so Pastor Charmley has said, I must take issue with your taking issue that the statement that the UK is supposed to be a Christian country. It is. Listen to the rest of the email. He says, we have an established church in England. A head of state is, is a supreme governor of the Church of England the largest single denomination in the country, and bishops sit in Parliament as bishops. Clergy of the Church of England are expected to baptize all infants brought to them and so on. It is difficult to imagine any more definite sign that this is meant to be a Christian country. It it isn't, of course, but a lot of British law is predicated on the idea that it is. Thus, the statement, this is supposed to be a Christian country, country is quite correct you know pastor charlie you 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 just bring up a great point here and uh, what i see in what you've described is the case politically and i would even argue um uh, culturally there in the uk is that there is such a meshing and mashing together and entangling of church and state uh that i think the church has completely lost sight of what its charter is. I think this is a complete mixing of the left-hand and right-hand kingdoms. And what's suffered? The preaching of the gospel. And as a result of it, uh, those who uh, who have faith... Now, my definition... Listen, just because you claim to be a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. A Christian is one who, by the working of God, through the word, has been given... Repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and trusts in Christ alone for their forgiveness, salvation, life, and everything. 
plain and simple. So what it comes down to is, is that a Christian is one who has saving faith. If you, you can claim to be a Christian, but if you don't have saving faith, you ain't. Um, and, uh, bad English, I understand, but, but bad English aside, um, the church, because it's so enmeshed and embroiled and that the idea here is you've got this mangling of there's no separation of church and state. The thing that's suffered, and this is so evident and clear from uh, the the ridiculous and absurd things that uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan, Dr. Rowan Williams, continues to say, uh, both in the press as well as from the pulpit, it just shows that the church has completely lost sight of what it's supposed to do. The best thing that could happen to the Church of England would be for the uh, the the British government to say, you know what, we're gonna uh, we're just gonna sever ties completely. You bishops out. You're got. You're no. You, I don't care. We don't care what tradition has been. How long you guys have sat in Parliament? Goodbye. Get written out. There'd be a whole lot of people going. Oh no, we're talking about the secularization of the of the of the British government, as if it hasn't been secularized already. Um, uh, the best thing that could happen would be for there to be no financial embroiling, no political meshing, anything like that, and for the church to be literally thrown outside the door and be required to speak prophetically much the same way John the Baptist did out in the wilderness wearing uh, camel's hair and eating grasshoppers and eating wild honey. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, that would actually probably be the best thing that could happen to the Church of England. Um, it might actually rediscover its charter uh, found in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. <clears throat> anyway, but thank you for the email, Pastor Charlie. Again, brilliant as always. Okay, from, okay let's see here. Uh, from the uh, from from politiken dot dk p o l i t i k e n dot dk. The editorial reads, Obama greater than Jesus. The U.S. president is the practical savior of our times. <sighs> what a lame savior he is. I mean, seriously. If Obama's the savior, I mean, good night. I mean, it, it, the lamest savior I've ever seen in my life. Talk about underwhelming. <clears throat> Let me read this editorial. Um, it, it reads, he is provocative in insisting on an outstretched hand where others only see animosity. His tangible results in the short time that he has been active are few and far between. Um, his greatest results have been created with words and speeches, words that remain in the consciousness of their audience and have long-term effects. Yeah, hang on a sec. I just got to make sure that my glasses are, are working. Hey, hang on a second. Did I read this correctly? Yeah. Okay. No smudge on the glasses. I was. Uh, I wanted to make sure that my glasses weren't causing things to like you know words to appear in wrong places or something like that. His tangible result results in the short time that he has been active are few and far between. Yes, that's correct. Obama has, as far as his results have been, dismal. Dismal. <laughs> I mean. I mean, impotent would probably be the right word here. His greatest results, apparently, according to the person who wrote this editorial, have been created with words and speeches, words that remain in the consciousness of their audience and have long-term effects. You know what's funny is is that 
Obama, I think, is the first person in history to win the Nobel Peace Prize for what he potentially could do. He hasn't really actually done anything to earn the Nobel Peace Prize. I saw uh, somebody sent me a, a graphic, that uh, a picture, that uh, a snap, if you would, uh, that showed uh, a, a chicken place down in the south, the southern part of, uh, of the United States, that said, uh, free Nobel Peace Prize with every order of chicken wings. <laughs> Okay, let me continue. <laughs> he comes from humble beginnings and defends the weak and the vulnerable because he can identify himself with their conditions. And no, we're not t- thinking of Jesus Christ, whose birthday has just been celebrated, but rather President of the United States, Barack Hussein Obama. For some time now, comparisons between the two have been a tool of cynical opinion that quickly became uh, fatigued of the rapture that Obama instilled prior to and after the presidential election last year. From the start, Obama's critics have claimed that his supporters have idolized him as a savior, thus attempting to dismantle the concrete hope that Obama has represented for most Americans. Really, you know, concrete hope. You know, I think about, hang on a second, talking about the actual savior, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, in the opening chapter to the book of Mark, uh, we've got the story of Jesus you know he's he's in a in a house and what happens is these guys dig a hole in the roof of the house and they lower a paralytic down through the roof and Jesus okay there there's this guy sitting on the floor in front of Jesus you, you can't imagine I, you can only imagine the uh, how inter, you know disruptive it would have been for these guys to be digging through the roof i mean it's not like you know it, Jesus is sitting there preaching and no one heard it but, you know, the, what happens is they dig through the roof, they lower this guy down right in front of Jesus, and the first thing Jesus says to the guy is, son, your sins are forgiven. Wow, that's, yeah, um, you, you, how, how do you show that someone's sins are forgiven, right? You know, okay, come on, I, anybody can make a claim like that, because it, first of all, you can't, where, where's the big heavenly tablet in the sky that keeps a record of sins or the book you know, where's the book that everyone can all look to google it on the internet and pull it up and where all of the sins are being tabulated right you can you where you can tangibly look oh well there it was yesterday and and now whew, there it's gone okay so i mean just speaking words there and what happens is is the jewish leaders i mean they 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 get all incensed like who is this guy claiming he can forgive sins only god can forgive sins and jesus knowing what they were saying in their hearts said yeah, all right which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up take your mat and walk okay now notice the question was which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and take your mat and walk and go home. Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can see that. To say to somebody, "Hey, you know, you're paralytic. Get up and walk." Yeah, you could you could say that, but if he isn't up and jumping around within a couple of seconds, yeah, that's going to kind of look stupid. So what what does Jesus do? He says, "So that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, the paralytic, get up, take your mat, and walk." And you know what he did? He walked. He got up and he walked. He was healed right there on the spot. So Jesus wasn't just full of empty words, offering empty hope. Okay. If 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 you were to take Obama, put him in the same situation because he's not God in human flesh. 
all Obama has done is offer people hope. And it's not concrete at all because it's just words. Or as Bill Clinton would say, I feel your pain. Since when do words offer concrete hope? The thing that offers concrete hope is action. It's results. So Jesus there tells the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, offering him hope. But it wasn't really concrete hope until he said, "Take, get up, take your mat and walk. Because then what happened is, is that that miracle is tied directly to his claim that his sins were forgiven. Not only did that, that paralytic leave completely healed, able to walk, he left with real concrete hope, knowing that his sins were forgiven by Christ himself, by God himself in human flesh. Why? Because his sins being forgiven were tied directly to, to, uh, to the miracle that he, that he was walking again. And in the, in the same way, though, our forgiveness of sins is secured and known and certain and concrete, not because Jesus was sitting there on the cross and he goes, it's finished, and then slumps over and dead, right? Jesus died. But that you might know that your sins are forgiven, Jesus Christ rose victorious from the grave three days later, offering you certainty and concrete hope that God has forgiven your sins in Christ and is offering you full and complete pardon. Salvation is something that's concrete because of the concrete works of Christ. Obama is no savior. He's offered hope, but hope do not, does not offer concrete hope unless it's followed with tangible results and actions. Obama is not a savior. He just talks, talks and talks and talks and talks and talks. Results, that's what offers real concrete hope. And as a result of it, Obama is the most impotent savior out there and doesn't even hold a candle to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Let me see what here. From the start, Obama's critics have claimed that his supporters have idolized him as a savior. They have, thus attempting to dismantle the concrete hope that Obama represented for most Americans. Uh, the idea was naturally that uh, the comparison between Jesus and Obama, which is something that all the critics developed themselves, would be comical, blasphemous, or both. If such a comparison were to be made, it would, of course, inevitably be to Obama's advantage. Really. Today, his historic health reform is being passed to the American Senate, a welfare policy breakthrough that several of his predecessors have been unable to manage. Um... Uh, yeah, I don't remember the Bush administration pushing for socialized medicine. Despite all the compromises, it has finally it has finally been possible to ensure something so fundamental as the right of every American to be finan to not be financially shipwrecked when their health fails them. Huh? Add to the biggest. Uh, by the way, okay, you know. So, all right, so okay, you know, he's got this bill gone through, but uh, where is it a where where is it a fundamental human right uh, to have free health care? It is, by the way, there is no such thing. Um, no, we're not bankrupt. You know, individuals are not going to be bankrupt now. The, the entire country is. Add to that the biggest financial support package of America's history, major disarmament agreement, and the quickest ever reestablishment of American reputation. Huh? These are results. On the other hand, we have Jesus' miracles and everyone still remembers, but which, which only benefited a few. 
At the same time, we have wonderful parables about his life and his deeds that we know from the New Testament, but which have been interpreted so differently over the past 2,000 years that it's impossible to give any unequivocal result of his work. Really? Obama is, of course, greater than Jesus. If we have to play the absurd Christmas game, it is probably more meaningful to insist that with today's domestic triumph, that he has already assured himself a place in the history books, a space he has good chances of expanding considerably in coming years. Without, however, ever attaining the heavens. By the way, um, really, I mean, that's, I mean, so that's what this person in Denmark thinks it somehow makes Obama better than Jesus? <clears throat> I hate to say this. Um, I'm old enough to remember the uh, Reagan administration. And um, quite frankly, um, I remember that President Reagan, uh, if you were to take President Reagan's accomplishments and compare them to Obama's accomplishments, um, well, then Reagan, by far, I mean, the, the two aren't even close, by far, has produced more long-lasting results that affected people more positively than Barack Obama. I mean, it, I mean it, it's so much so, it's embarrassing. I, whoever wrote this doesn't know what they're talking about. Oh, there you have it. So apparently Barack Obama is better, greater than Jesus Christ. Dubious thinking at best, dumb at best. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far in this edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. 
nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian jerks. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth, Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them Toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we are back. Uh, yeah, I'm out of sorts. Warning, this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. I get the emails on a regular basis. It has the ability to kind of pop the bubble, if you know what I mean. Just make it so that you, you can see. Oh, It'll open your eyes to what's really going on, especially if your pastor ain't giving you the goods. Thinking, huh? What, what goods is my pastor supposed to be giving me? Christ and him crucified for your sins. Preaching Christ, actually doing the work of telling you, proclaiming what the Bible says and teaches, not the ravings or bizarre ideas of their own mind. Anyway, that's one of the dangers of listening to this program. All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon your generous financial support in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Currently, we are looking for you know, somewhere south of 700 people. We still, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's about in the 650 range. We need about that many people to join our Fighting for the Faith pirate Christian radio crew. 
It is a mere $6.95 a month. It automatically comes out of your account once you sign up for it. And it comes out on the uh, the monthly uh, anniversary. That's not the right word, but like if you join on the 30th, it comes out on the 30th. If you join on the 1st, it comes out on the 1st. That's the idea. It's only $6.95 a month. That is that is what? Two Famous Amos cookies? Uh, one one you know really big uh, uh, brownie from uh, Mrs. Fields uh, along with a drink. You know, we're, it's, we're not talking a lot of money here. However, even though it's a small amount to you, it is a huge amount to us because once we can get to a thousand uh, people who've joined our crew, then we are financially uh, independent, if you would. And it, independence is kind of an important thing for us because uh, we are rapidly approaching the end of, uh, of of generous support that's come through a very large donor. And so uh, we need you to join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. The way you do it is visit fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button and pay close attention because as soon as the membership screen is is processed, there's a button that shows up that says click here for information on how to access the Pirate Christian Cove. And uh, I'm literally just about done. I'm so excited uh, to dump a whole bunch of new stuff into the Cove. And one of the things uh, that I'm going to be putting in there is going to be referred to today. And it's uh, Clement's uh, Clement of Rome's epistle to the uh, to the Corinthians, and uh, you're thinking, what? <laughs> huh? That doesn't sound exciting. Oh, believe me, trust me, it's really important that you read this document and understand it. And we'll explain why shortly. Anyways, of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond that, or to donate a flat amount, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to. Fighting for the Faith, and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right. With that, um, you're not going to believe this, but Patricia King has, um, well, she's got three videos up at the Extreme Prophetic website where she's going to, she's making predictions for the year 2010. We are going to document these. And a year from now, Lord willing, that we're still on the air and broadcasting, we will revisit this edition of Fighting for the Faith in order to test, to see if the Holy Spirit is actually the one speaking to Patricia King because she claims that she's got this information from God himself. And uh, we're going to see just how accurate she is as a prophet. That is, of course, if you can actually figure out what it is that she's saying is going to happen. So uh, this is our first installment of this. Here is Patricia King making her predictions for 2010. Right now, I'm trying to unpack for you some of the things that the Lord has been showing me regarding 2010. Now, got to pause right there. Who's showing her this? She's claiming that she's getting these visions she, the the God, the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, God Almighty, is the one showing her the things that are going to happen in 2010. Let's continue. And um, one of the areas is in economy and what's going to be happening um, to the economy, especially in the Western world in 2010. I do see more shakings that are coming. It says in, in Hebrews um, that everything that can be shaken will be shaken the spirit of mammon especially in the united states of america is being judged other nations are not going to feel it as hard as the united states but there will be further shakings 
It'll look like there'll be waves of recovery and kind of hope being given in that. But ultimately, there's a shaking going on that is going to last over a number of years. This is not an area that should cause any alarm for those who are aligned with God. Okay, so we're going to have financial shakings. It's not going to be felt as bad in other countries as it is in America. It's going to last for several years. But if you are aligned with God, it shouldn't trouble you at all. I say that again. It's not an area where any Christian should be um, gripped by fear or have any alarm caused as long as you know what system you are serving. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. And he's speaking of mammon and the kingdom. You cannot serve God and money. You have to choose one master. If the love of your life is all about money, if your focus is all about money, if your concerns are all about money, if when you wake up in the morning you're thinking about how you're going to do with your personal economy, if that is in your mind all the time, then perhaps that has become your God. But if God is on your heart and you trust him and money isn't an issue, money isn't what you live for, but God is who you live for, then you know then you're, that, that you're in right alignment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, the world's economy is going to be shaken. Okay. It's coming down. Uh, so the whole world's economy is coming down? You know, people are thinking, well, how should I invest and how should I do this and what should I put my money in and what am I going to do if I lose it all? You've got to get rid of all those fears. You've got to move that all out of the way and seek the Lord and say, Lord, I'm giving myself 100% to you. I'm not going to be afraid of, of what happens or what doesn't happen. I'm going to look completely to you because God is looking for a people whose heart is completely his. And I tell you that <clears throat> law on an economic basis, he's going to show himself strong to those who are aligned in that way. Okay, so the world economy is coming down, but those who are properly aligned, God's going to show himself strong. Apparently, this is going to be some kind of a judgment on the world and the system of mammon. But if you are rightly aligned, you will. God's going to show strong. I mean, all right. If you can get rid of all your fear and take the fear to the end. Well, what would happen if you lost everything? You know, if you were to lose everything of a of natural value, like all the money in your bank account or, you know, everything that you have of a monetary value. What if you did lose it all? Is God still more than enough for you? Now, when you get to the place where you're willing to lose it, when you're willing to give up houses, lands, family, all of it for God, when you get to the place of willingness to, to let it all go where it doesn't bother you anymore, if you were to lose it all, then that's when God kicks in. You won't lose it. You'll gain. You have to let go in order to gain. So in your heart, Check it out to see if there's anything that's holding you in bondage, if there's any love for money. money. Yeah, do it quick because, I mean, the whole world economy is coming down. And only those who can, you know, get this right alignment, well, they'll make it through. Any focus on money, anything that makes you live for money. If you have that in your heart, you could get personally shaken. But if you don't, you won't. La, 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 la. You know, I wonder if uh, she's going to suggest that one way that you can show that you've gotten to that point where you don't mind if you lose it all is to send it all to her. Jesus came with nothing. He came as a little baby in swaddling clothes, and yet 
he held all the authority of the entire universe. When he was in his ministry, it said he didn't even have a place to lay his head. And yet, and yet he lived with abundance. Every day he had more than enough food. He had everything that he needed. He lived in, in this great weight of blessing day by day by day. <laughs> Where is this found in the Bible, Patricia? Because he knew the God of more than enough. If he needed to feed a whole multitude, he could do it. If he needed money to pay taxes, pulled it out of a fish's mouth. It was not a problem because he knew that he was um, uh, living in a supernatural realm because he served a supernatural God. This is what God is... Uh, you do understand that Jesus is God in human flesh. ...saying to his church in 2010, get supernatural. This is what he's saying to his church in 2010. Hang on, I have to back this up. That be what? Jesus is saying to his church, get supernatural? ...natural realm because he served a supernatural God. This is what God is saying to his church in 2010. Get supernatural. This is what he's saying to his church in 2010. Oh, man. What was that song? I'm gonna get physical, physical... So now apparently for the for 2010 the song will be gonna get supernatural supernatural yeah according to to kingdom economy now we have a a uh, CD that I've taught on it's called Kingdom Economy it's a single CD teaching I highly recommend that you get that we also have a four CD teaching called riches and glory get yourself immersed in the Word of God that shows you what you have uh, if I want to immerse myself in the Word of God why would I purchase your CDs to do that wouldn't I just need to open my Bible but I'm going to give you a few little keys. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, they're free online if you want to. I mean, you have to use a web browser, but you can point your web browser to BibleGateway.org. And, uh, you know, they've got you can read the Bible right there for free on the Internet. If you want to, you know, immerse yourself in God's word, no need to pay her anything. Pathetically right now. Do not withhold your tithe in 2010. In fact, even now, going into 2010, if you've been withholding your tithe, repent from that right now and say, God, I'm so sorry that I haven't given you the first and the best. Oh, so apparently, apparently not withholding your tithe means sending it to her. Give him the first and the best. Even sacrifice whatever it takes. Ron and I would always sacrifice to go to the next level of tithing. When we got comfortable with one a tithe, which is 10%, we go for the next 10% and the next 10%. And we would just sacrifice personal things in order to give more to God. And now we live in... Why do I feel like this is less prophetic word from Jesus Christ about what's going to happen in 2010 and really more about sending her money? Just a feeling I'm getting, you know, I could be wrong abundance all around us not because we've got lots of money in our bank account but because we live in a supernatural dimension we live like millionaires although we don't have millions in our bank account or anything like that but we live like that because we live in the glory of god it's because of putting god first give him the first and the best also sow unto a harvest the the sure word of the lord there's a cut Sow into a harvest. Uh-huh. Plant that seed, uh, but make your check payable to extreme. Yeah.
covenant that will not be revoked because God says, as long as the earth remains, there will be seed time and a corresponding harvest. Genesis 8, verse 22. So we have a covenant. When you sow a seed in the natural. Genesis 8 is talking about money. Hang on a second here. This has got to do a little biblical fact checking. Genesis. Did she say 822? Okay. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat and summer and winter, will de- and day and night shall not cease. And this has nothing to do with um, money, Patricia. Let me read it in a context. Genesis chapter 8, uh, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Uh, what does this have to do with sending your money to Patricia King? Hmm. If a farmer sows a seed, he will reap a harvest. And your harvest is always more than what you sow. Now, when you apply that principle, not only for natural, you know, physical seed. Money is not a seed. That's not a principle that it gets applied to money. Money's a resource to be used wisely. It's not a seed. You don't plant money in the ground and get a money tree. Planted in physical dirt and reaping a physical harvest, when you apply that principle to giving of your finances, when you sow finances into good soil in the kingdom of God, like a ministry... Uh, can you say allegory and completely wrong hermeneutic here? Oh, boy. That is full of integrity and wisdom and fruit. When you sow your seed into that good soil, it will return for you 30, 60, 100 fold. Yeah, see, all you got to do is, you know, is, you know, so that would mean for every dollar that you give to Patricia King's ministry, you get 30, 60, 100 bucks back. The Bible does not teach this. Now, even if you were to take 100 times or 30 times what you sowed, that's a lot. So put your faith out to reap your harvest. Recently, the Lord's... Put your faith out in order to reap a harvest. This is just exploiting people with false words in order to fleece them for their money. Unbelievable. No shame whatsoever. She must be really hurting. Given us a building project. In fact, I I invite you to sew into it. If you want more buildings and life. Sew into her building project. Folks, if I ever tell you to sew into fighting for the faith, please, please, somebody come and yank me off the air and take me outside and behind the woodshed. Good night. Seriously, that's about all I can stand right now. This is just, this is just charlatan, charlatan tree. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word. 
Unbelievable. Anyway, so there you go. First prophecy there uh, for 2010 is is that there's going to be shakings. But if you have an if you everything's aligned, it'll all work out for you. Financially, the whole world economy is going to you know come down. But uh, if you uh, that's what she said. God told her. So we'll check back at the end of 2010 to see how this pans out. <laughs> Something tells me we don't even need to wait that long to know whether or not this is from God. It ain't. Oh man, what a mess. All right, we are up on our second break, and when we come back, we're going to listen to more of John Shelby Spong and then do our sermon review. And you're not going to want to miss our, our next segment on John Shelby Spong. It's going to take us a while to get through everything this guy said, but it's worth listening to. And uh, we're going to be doing a little bit of how do you know that the New Testament documents, the New Testament biographies, are reliable eyewitness testimony? How can you know that 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 you know that you can trust this stuff? That's going to be part of our rebuttal. Uh, against what we hear from uh, so-called Bishop John Shelby Spunk. So now if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far on this edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can uh, email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It is facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning for the written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we are back, hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. 
going to listen to a little bit more of John Shelby Spong's uh, recent interview, uh, appearance on Doug Paget's radio program there in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Otherwise known as American Siberia. Someplace I hope to live someday. Why? Yeah. I have brain damage. <laughs> That's not an insult to you living in Minnesota. It just... Yeah, I've got, coming from Southern California to Indiana and then up to, yeah, it's it doesn't make any sense. It <laughs> doesn't make any sense at all. All right, um, here we go. Uh, this is um, John Shelby Spong. Uh, if you, yesterday's segment we heard uh, former Bishop John Shelby Spong apparently trying to divine, get a hint as to what's going to happen in the afterlife. And everywhere he was looking was anywhere except for the Bible. He looked into the collective unconsciousness of Carl Jung. He was looking at, uh, you know, at plant life in the Amazon rainforest and looking how roots and stuff work. He was looking at paranormal psychology and things like that and anything to get a hint as to what's coming in the afterlife. But nowhere is he looking in the Bible to find out what's going on. And so he basically, Doug Padgett asked him if um, he was trying to debunk, you know, heaven because he didn't believe in it. Here was his response. Is that well, if, if, if heaven is a place where you go to get a reward, I'd like to debunk it. So he makes it clear he wants to debunk uh, Christian if you think it's a place where you go to get a, quote, reward. Anyway, there we go. There's that. But then, so then the question came up as to whether or not you can be a Christian and say the things that he's doing and 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 you know say the things he's saying and do the things he's doing and attack the things he's attacking. So listen carefully to Bishop Spong's response to this because it's oh so enlightening. Here we go. People don't know how to use religious language because all religious language is symbolic. None of it is. Uh, oh, wait a second here. Let me back. He's saying all religious language is symbolic. See, the thing is you can't you can't take the Bible literally. All religious language is symbolic. Okay, so when it says that Jesus rose from the dead, that's symbolic of something. When it says that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that's symbolic of something. When it says that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that's symbolic. All religious language is symbolic. How does he know this? How do you know all religious language is symbolic? Because, you know, what's funny is, is that, that, like, for instance, Luke uh, the author of the Gospel of Luke, uh, he seems to take great pains in uh, writing a history. And not only, it's not just a history. It's actually a two-part history. Uh, let me pull out my Bible here. Uh, hang on a second here. I was going to my Lutheran study Bible when it would probably be smarter for me to actually go to my computerized Bible because, well, it's on my computer. But let's take a look at. I mean, look, look listen to this. Let's see if the, if Luke is trying to convey symbolism here or history. He says, "Inasmuch as many as undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and, and ministers of the word have have delivered them to us." It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And then he goes on, verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea. That doesn't sound symbolic to me. Hang on a second here. 
How about uh, Luke chapter 2? How's that thing start? Let's take a look. Um, Chapter 2. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus to all the world that they should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Huh. Really? So the Bible is all just symbols, but yet the authors themselves make a point of claiming that this isn't symbol, that this is actual history and stuff that has been accomplished in their time. And and they wanted to document what the eyewitnesses to these events saw and experienced and heard. Hmm. Let me play this again from Dr. Spong. People don't know how to use religious language because all religious language is symbolic. None of it is literal. And to go back to your first question, I consider myself a Christian. I've served as a priest and a bishop of my church since 19... Uh, 55, that's a right long period of time. (laughs) Uh, I was the senior sitting bishop in the American Episcopal Church when I retired. Uh, Nobody's made any effort to suggest that I don't qualify for that position. (laughs) Uh, Well, let me be the first then. Since you claim nobody has made, you you were not qualified to hold that position because you don't actually believe the Christian faith. You attack the word of God. You were never qualified to be a priest or a pastor or even called a Christian. You're a heretic. You should have been thrown out. Just because somebody didn't do you the honors of actually telling you the truth and then throwing you out of the church as a heretic doesn't mean that you're not a heretic. We continue. Uh, in terms of either faith or belief, what people don't understand is that Christianity has never been a set of propositions, even at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. What we did today called orthodoxy in Christian Now, faith. listen carefully. It's never been a set of propositions. No, actually, it, it really is. a. There's a bunch of propositions. Truth claims. Yeah, propositions held out as truth. The gospel is good news. It is the proposition. It is the truth claim that God became a man in Jesus Christ, lived a perfectly righteous life, and died as our substitute on the cross for our sins, and rose again on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This took place in history. This is not symbolic. It's an actual historical event. And as a result of this, Jesus tells us after his resurrection to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations. You see, you can claim anything you want about God. And that's what John Shelby Spong is doing. He's making all kinds of claims. But they're not true. Faith isn't what's right it's what won we've had a lot of battles Mm. about what you know he said let me back this up he says the orthodoxy isn't what's right he says it's what 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 won so uh, see christianity isn't uh, orthodoxy the orthodoxy is just the thing that won all these battles and uh and but it's not the orthodoxy is not really christianity wrong orthodoxy in christian faith isn't what's right it's what won we've had a lot of battles Mm. about what what christianity is and what we call orthodoxy today is sort of the one that won but it doesn't mean it was necessarily true uh when people when i ask people what are the criteria that make you a christian they start out with the virgin birth well i don't know of a single biblical theologian of world rank who still believes that that's literal history okay listen to that what was that by the way we call that an ad hominem argument i don't know of a single world world recognized scholar that still believes that's a literal thing 
Um, let me see. Uh, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, Gary Habermas, uh, Alvin Plantinga. Uh, I, I can name quite a list. Uh, Craig Evans. Uh, doctor, yeah, Dr. Craig Egan, Evans, N.T. Wright. And, and basically what would he – well, this is an ad hominem argument. Watch how this plays out. This is just sweeping arrogance on his part. And Well, of course, those guys, well, they're, they're not world-renowned or they're just – backwoods fundamentalists. Listen to this. I mean, it's breathtakingly arrogant. Hang on, backing it up. Listen carefully. Uh, when people, when I ask people, what are the criteria that make you a Christian? They yeah. start out with the virgin birth. Well, I don't know of a single biblical theologian of world rank who still believes that that's literal history. Not a single one. Now, you might find one at Bob Jones University or Oral Roberts University or Jerry Falwell might tell you this. We have one or two English neo-fundamentalists who will try to make a case for that. Yeah. But I don't know of anybody that really takes that seriously. I mean, stars do not wander through the sky so slowly that wise men on camels can keep up with them. Listen, listen. Okay, listen carefully. What are his presuppositions here? What is the presupposition? Miracles can't happen. Therefore, when we read in the scriptures the accounts of a miracle, it automatically is not true because I know that miracles can't happen. That is circular logic. Well, we know that stars don't just wander through the sky. We know that you know, the presupposition here is that the miraculous can't happen. Okay, now let me back this up. Listen carefully to this profound arrogance. Here we go. Neo-fundamentalist who will try to make a case for that. Yeah. But I don't know of anybody that really takes that seriously. I mean, stars do not wander through the sky so slowly that wise men on camels can keep up with them. Shepherds don't get serenaded in the middle of the night by angels out of, the, out of heaven, as if heaven is somehow just above the sky. Virgins do not conceive except in mythology. Uh, and, you know, men don't take their wives who are great with child on a 94-mile donkey ride from Nazareth to Bethlehem either, you know. Yeah. Those, th- those stories are not written to be literally understood, and even Matthew and Luke, who are the only two gospel writers that put those stories into the Christian tradition, uh, even they obviously didn't think that they were, were literal. Funny enough, there's nothing in those gospel accounts, nothing in those gospel accounts that would make you think otherwise. Especially when you read Luke. Luke takes great pains to say that he interviewed the eyewitnesses and went out to to write all this down and make an account of this. Now, I want you to pay close attention to this point. He claims that neither Matthew or Luke actually believed in the virgin birth and that these things were literal. Okay? And then he'll turn around and deny their authorship. He's trying to have his cake and eat it, too. I want you to listen to it again. Okay, so here you go. If you believe that these things are literal, yeah, you probably belong at Bob Jones University or Jerry Falwell's thing. You know, nobody of world renown actually believes this stuff. Ad hominem argument. Okay. And no, you know, and then it's not even the biblical authors took it seriously. And neither Matthew nor Luke, and he refers to them as the authors of uh, these gospels. And then later he's going to deny that that it's eyewitness testimony. Just listen carefully. Here we go stories are not written to be literally understood, and even Matthew and Luke, who are the only two gospel writers that put those stories into the Christian tradition, uh, even they obviously didn't think that they were, were literal. 
Okay, so on the one hand, he says that Matthew and Luke didn't think that these stories were literal, yet what I just read for you, for you from Luke chapter 1, and I defy anybody to find me any evidence in Luke or Matthew that, any, that they didn't think this stuff was literal. Matthew is an eyewitness account. Luke is an account written by interviewing the eyewitnesses. Luke says so at the opening of his book. We continue. Listen carefully. Well, let me let me begin by saying that uh, if if you study the gospel tradition deeply enough, you will learn some basic things. One is that none of the gospels are written until the second to third generation after Jesus. None of them are written by eyewitnesses. All of them are written in a language Jesus didn't speak. Okay. Did you hear that? None of the gospels were written until the second or third generation after Jesus. Now you're thinking, oh, that sounds terrible. Well, wait a second. How long is a generation? Let's just say... Bishop Spong is correct, that none of the Gospels were written until the second or third generation after Jesus' death. How long's a generation? Well, I looked it up. A generation, basically, is considered the time that it takes for uh, a generation. It's, it's not a fixed amount of time, but it's generally the agreed-upon average amount of time for when a child is born to when the, uh, that child grows to adulthood and, and has children of their own. Anywhere from 20 to 25 years. So if, if the Gospels were not written until the second generation, that could be anywhere from 20 to 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And you're thinking... Well, isn't that a lot of time? Well, let me let me put some perspective on this, okay? If you want to know something regarding, uh, give, give some kind of a reference to um, how long a generation is, okay? Are you ready? Here we go. One generation ago, there was a world-changing, if you would, and it wasn't it wasn't amazing in the good sense it was amazing in the terrible sense a huge thing happened and i remember it as if it were yesterday and those of you who were old enough at this time will remember it quite vividly let me play for you audio from that event here we go the voice of launch control hugh harris of nasa T-minus 10 9 8 7 Six. We have main engine start. Four, three, two, one, and liftoff. Liftoff on the 25th in. space shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. Challenger going into its roll. That's planned. This is from January 28th, 1986. I remember it like it was yesterday. Senior year of high school during finals week. Away from Pad 39B, the first use of Pad 39B since the old Apollo days and the Skylab missions. It's chilly in Florida. Icicles formed on the pad overnight. NASA engineers are concerned that they might have broken off during the launch and affected the fragile heat protection tiles that protect the shuttle on its way back in during re-entry. We'll throttle down to 65% shortly. Don't know what the effect might be just yet. The astronauts will take a look later on during the mission. Engines at 65%, three engines uh, running normally, three good fuel cells, three good APUs. APUs, the 
auxiliary power units. 2,257 feet per second. Altitude 4.3 nautical miles, downrange distance 3 nautical miles. It's always amazing to hear how quickly the shuttle moves. It's already more than 4 miles downwind as we Engine disturb. throttling up, 3 engines now at 104%. Challenger, go and throttle up. Challenger, go and throttle up. This shuttle mission will launch, my God, there's been an explosion. Velocity 2,900 feet per second, altitude 9 nautical miles, downrange distance 7 nautical miles. This is not standard. This is not something that is planned, of course. I can see a solid rocket booster has broken away from Shuttle Challenger. That's what you're looking at in the middle of your screen. I cannot see the shuttle itself. I don't know if it's able to continue on one rocket booster. If it's able to jettison that rocket booster, it will be able to return to the Kennedy Space Center, perhaps. The shuttle engines are not enough to power the shuttle back down. It would have that was the audio from a telecast of the Space Shuttle, cha space shuttle cha Challenger taking off and blowing up just a couple minutes after it took off. That happened a generation or maybe even just a little more than a generation ago. And to give you some perspective here, no, it, let's just let me help you out, help all of us out. If I were to make the claim, listen, all of you out there who think the Challenger blew up, you are a bunch of, well, you've been sold a bill of goods. The Challenger really didn't blow up. That was actually staged by Hollywood, and it was all part of a ploy that NASA put together in order to get more money from, uh, the, from the U.S. Congress and from the Senate, you know, put into their budget. And that actually Krista McAuliffe and, you know, the teacher who supposedly died in the Challenger accident, she didn't really die. She's actually been living in Barbados this entire time. In fact, sad thing is, you know, that she's gained weight and, uh, and, and recently, uh, the biggest loser, uh, you know, turned her down to be a contestant on their program. Can you believe that? Anybody? Now, see, here's the deal. If I were to be putting out this false history, regarding the Challenger accident that occurred a little over a generation ago. All of us who are alive, who are alive at that time, who remember this event, would have said, that's not what happened. You're crazy. The, the thing blew up. I saw it with my own two eyes. I was glued to the television all day long. I didn't even eat dinner that night. I I just felt sick in my stomach. I had to watch it over and over again. We were hanging on any word, any information, anything that we can get that that, that Krista McAuliffe and and the and the uh, and the other astronauts were alive, and that somehow they had escaped doom. It was terrible, and yet that happened just a little over a generation ago. And the funny thing is is that if you look at when the Gospels are written, for instance, the Gospel of Luke, uh, you know, the research I've been looking at in the Gospel of Luke, and this is not the first Gospel written, it, it's written like 55 to 60 A.D. And remember, Luke is part of a two-part book. Acts is, is, is part two of his book. And in the book of Acts, there's stuff in there that's written in first-person plural. Luke is an eyewitness to many of the events that take place. Yet in, in the book of Acts, which, pre, which follows the, Luke's gospel, you've got data 
that you know narrative data regarding Jesus's life being proclaimed by Peter and the apostle Paul to different people as they go out on their missionary journeys. And what does that tell you? The the narrative information about Christ was being proclaimed so shortly after Jesus's death by the eyewitnesses themselves by the eyewitnesses themselves, that there was no way they would have been able to get away with fabricating a false history because there were people who were alive then who were who who were favorable to and hostile to the message of Christianity. And if they were just making up wholesale this stuff about Jesus, these documents were written so early, within a generation or two, that there were still eyewitnesses that would have been able to controvert these histories, these biographies, had they been giving an alternate history. Much the same way if I were to make outrageous claims regarding the Challenger accident. That's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Let me, you know, so anyway, uh, Bishop Spong here is basically making a claim that we can't trust the New Testament documents. Okay, but here's the deal. Okay, when I was looking at and kind of reviewing the, uh, you know, the liberal arguments for the later dating, you know what it hinges on? Many of the liberal arguments against the uh, against the early dating of the the New Testament uh, biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What their big argument is is that listen, the temple in in uh, in Jerusalem is destroyed. What seventy A.D. somewhere roughly around there, and Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke and Mark, uh, predicts. And I think Matthew, Matthew and Luke, he predicts the uh, the destruction of the temple. And because miracles are not possible, you know, stars don't just wander across the sky, virgins don't get pregnant unless in mythologies. Uh, you know, people don't walk on water, people don't rise from the dead because Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. In Jerusalem, they say miracles can't happen. If he can predict the destruction of the temple and prophetically get it right, then that would mean that a miracle took place. Therefore, ergo, that means that the New Testament biographies had to be written after 70 AD. Because otherwise, Jesus successfully predicted the future, and that's a miracle, and miracles are not possible. You see, that's how the argument runs. But how do they know miracles are not possible? Are they God? How can they know a priori, without any investigation, without any evidence, just from their armchairs in front of their little laptop computers, make the compu- the, the, the decision that no miracles are ever possible Therefore, that means that the, no Gospels could have been written until after the destruction of the temple. That's their whole argument. It's ridiculous and it's preposterous. And it doesn't make any sense at all if you actually look at the data. The New Testament itself, when you look at the documents and you apply the exact same tests, the exact same standard that we apply to any document of antiquity. The New Testament documents come out 
shiny. They are so strong. You know, the evidence to support that they were written by who they claim to be written by, that we contain that they contain eyewitness testimony from the people who actually walked, talked, ate, slate, uh, slept, uh, traveled around the country, heard and witnessed Jesus in his life and teaching. It's it, in fact, nothing even comes close. There is no other document in antiquity that even comes close as New Testament documents. And if you want to get a feel for what some of this stuff, you know, for what some of these arguments are, I would strongly recommend you pick up a, a, a book like Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, Volume 1 by uh, Josh McDowell. It's, it's kind of a, a classic. And he lays it out really clearly. These tests, these basic tests are the biographical test, the internal evidence test, and the external evidence test. These are standard tests applied to any document from antiquity. And when you apply them to the Bible, it's the Bible comes out looking great. Okay. In fact, when, you know, let, let me give you a, a great quote here. Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was the director and principal librarian of the British Museum and a second to none in the authority for issuing statements regarding ancient manuscripts, said, Beside the number of manuscripts of the New Testament uh, differ from those of the classical authors, and this time the difference is clear uh, is a clear gain. In no other case is there an interval of time between the composition of the book and the date of the earliest extant manuscripts so short as that in the case of the New Testament. The books of the New Testament were written in the latter part of the first century. The earliest extant manuscripts and trifling scraps accepted are of the fourth century, say from about 250 to 300 years later. Now, that might sound like a considerable interval, but it is nothing, nothing uh, to that which uh, parts most of the great classical authors from their earliest manuscripts. We believe that we have in all essentials an accurate text of the seven extant plays of Sophocles, yet their earliest substantial manuscripts upon which it is based was written more than 1,400 years after the poet's death. The interval then between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small in the case of the New Testament as to be, in fact, negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us as substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the New Testament of books may be regarded as firmly established. Yeah, yeah, you see, um, when you really just apply the normal test that you apply to any ancient manuscript, the Bible comes out better than anything. Nothing even comes close. So we, we know, we can say with certainty that what's come down to us has come down to us unaltered. And on top of it, we can look then at the evidence to say, how do we know how early it is? Well, I'm going to give you one real simple way of knowing. Okay. And what I'm going to be doing is part of the stuff that I'm putting into uh, the uh, Pirate Cove, for those of you who are members of the uh, Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, what, I'm put, what I've been working on is uh, I've been modernizing a translation of Clement of Rome's epistle to the Corinthians. And uh, Clement of Rome, by the way, if you, he's mentioned in the book of Philippians. He, he was probably with Paul in Philippi at, at 57 AD. And church history uh, tells us that... Um, that uh, in fact, it, let me, let me um, that Clement of Rome was appointed to Tertullian tell us in, in his book uh, against heresies 
tells us that Clement of Rome was appointed by Peter himself as the Bishop of Rome. And Irenaeus, in his book against heresies, book three, chapter three, he says that uh, uh, Clement of Rome had the preaching of the apostles still echoing in his ears and their doctrine in front of his eyes. That's, I mean, this, this guy knew the apostles personally. Okay. Um, and he wrote an epistle to the Corinthian church roughly about 95 AD, 95 AD. And in this document, he quotes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Peter, Hebrews, and the book of Titus, along with other stuff that he quotes out of the Old Testament. Okay? Ignatius, okay, who was one of the, uh, who was the Bishop of Antioch, and he was martyred, and uh, he was well, he knew the apostles well and was probably uh, uh, discipled by the apostle John in his seven epistles, which were written late in the first century, um, he, he quotes Matthew, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, Colossians, James, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and 1 and 2 Peter. In fact, just between Clement and Ignatius, we got those two guys are quoting extensively from these books that according to the liberals and their mythologies as to when the New Testament was written, uh, would make it so it would, these guys are quoting from these books before they were even written, according to some of the liberals. And yet, Clement himself dies at the close of the first century. He dies almost at the same time as the Apostle John does. So, one of the things, you know, what's patently obvious with these guys is that they are playing on people's ignorance. If you understand a little bit about church history and have read some of the early letters by these church fathers like Clement and Ignatius, Polycarp, Papias, uh, then what what you would find out is, is that their claims don't hold any credence whatsoever. How do you quote a book that hasn't even been written yet if it was written so late? Or how do you quote a book that was just written uh, uh, two years prior to your epistle and it was supposedly written to a Jewish audience in Judea and it's traveled all the way over from your from Judea to Rome in a couple of year period of time? No way. No way. No way. It just flies in the face of sound evidence and sound scholarship regarding the New Testament documents. These liberals are not people who believe the scriptures. They doubt the scriptures. They attack the scriptures. They undermine the the scriptures. They impugn the scriptures. And that's what we're hearing in Bishop Spong. And that's why his, his sound bites here are so important for us to hear. And this is what's ticking under the hood of the emergent church. The emergent church isn't championing the scriptures. They're also attacking the scriptures. They are questioning the scriptures, calling them into question and wanting to interpret them wildly. Yet, let me. So, uh, Isaiah chapter 66. Verse two, the Lord says this, but this is the one whom I will look upon. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles 
at my word. That's what God says. He will, the one he looks on is the one who trembles at his word. These people don't tremble at it. They scoff at God's word. They attack God's word. These men are not Christian men. Bishop Shelby Spong should have never been allowed to be a bishop, yet alone a priest. And because he wasn't disciplined, it emboldened him in his apostasy so that now, at the end of his life, he continues to write books claiming to be a churchman that attack God's word. And yet, if you know the scriptures and you know church history, it's not hard to debunk any of the outrageous claims that he's making because they're not historically accurate. History is not on his side. The facts are not on his side. Let's listen a little bit more. So that you've got mm-hmm. to you've got to trace an oral tradition from forty years to seventy years, and you've got to translate it into a different language before you and I can read the first word. So you ought to be very careful about being literal. Mm-hmm. Secondly, if you by the way, uh, what do you think the apostles were teaching prior to them writing their gospels? What do you think they were talking about? If we were here, if we were to take a, a video recorder back in time, and you know, do the the Wayne's World thing, and 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 land in Judea, and had the ability to hear these men preach and teach, what do you think? What stories would we hear them teaching and preaching? The stuff that's recorded in the New Testament, the eyewitness testimony, the things that they were witnesses of. We continue know how the Bible came to be written. It was a liturgical book, the, the New Testament. When, when uh, Matthew wrote the first verse, birth story of Jesus, he traces in the first 17 verses of Matthew 1, he traces a genealogy of Jesus in which he includes four women in Jewish history. Their stories are in the Bible itself that uh, you could go and read. And all four of these women were, by the standards of their day, sexually tainted women. One was guilty of it. Oh, by the way, uh, regarding eyewitness testimony, real quick here. <clears throat> Peter writes in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, which, by the way, um, uh, Clement of Rome does quote from Second Peter. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter saying, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We may know to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Let me give you another one. John the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. John writing, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the, of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Apostle John says that we have seen his glory, claiming to be an eyewitness. In fact, in 1 John, chapter 1, Verse 1, he writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked at and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was with the Father. 
The Apostle John claims to be an eyewitness. Luke claims to have interviewed the eyewitnesses. And Luke's gospel fits the uh, eyewitness testimony of Matthew, folds into it rather nicely. And from church history, we learn that the gospel of Mark, more than likely, were the sermon notes of the preaching of the Apostle Peter, another eyewitness, and he claims to be an eyewitness. So who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe John Shelby Spong? He who turns the Bible into nothing more than symbolic mythology or the eyewitnesses who claim that they were eyewitnesses. And all the evidence, if you look at the evidence for real, shows that the New Testament documents, they're reliable, trustworthy, written early by the men that claim to be to write them, who were eyewitnesses to the events therein. And they are testifying to what they've seen and proclaimed to you. We continue. Incest, one was, was a prostitute, one was a seductress, and one was an adulteress. And then he tells the story of the virgin birth. Now, you have to ask yourself, what's going on when he introduces the story in this way? There obviously were a lot of sort of uh, rumors about the paternity of Jesus. And, and he writes this story, and he says, in the line that produces Jesus, it had to travel through incest and prostitution and, and uh, seduction and adultery. And then he tells the story of the wise men, and if you know anything about the biblical narrative, you'll know that he's basing the wise men on the 60th chapter of of Isaiah, where the story is said that kings come to the brightness of God's rising, they come on camels, and they bring gold and frankincense. That yeah. sounds a little bit familiar. Yeah, right. yeah, that would be called a prophecy. But, of course, that actually telling a prophecy about what would happen would require a miracle to take place. We can't, we can't have that happening, so what, what happened then? Uh, people say, well, there's no myrrh in that. Well, it also says these kings come from Sheba, and if you go back into the Jewish story and read the visit of the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon, you'll find that that's where the myrrh comes into the story. The sign of a star in the east to announce an important birth is a technique that the Jews had used. You can find this in the Mishnah. They used it for the birth of Abraham. They used it for the birth of Isaac. They used it for the birth of Moses. This is a common Jewish storytelling technique. The whole world is going to be affected by the birth of this particular life is what they're, what they're trying to say. When you go into Luke's story, uh, and Luke is the only other person that gives us a birth narrative, you'll find that in the story of John the Baptist's parents, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, that it's a retelling of the Abraham and Sarah story. Mm -hmm. This is a postmenopausal birth. It's supposed to be quite a wonder. Now, uh, notice, I want to point something out here. Jesus Christ himself, in Luke's gospel, on the road to Emmaus, opens up the scriptures and shows the two disciples there how all the law and the prophets were written about him. So what happens, This is, John Shelby Spong, in his unbelief, in his apostasy, in his attack against God's word, sees Jesus' story in the Old Testament clearly, and what he does is he twists it as proof against Jesus. That's how backwards he's, he is. Uh, you have the, the focus is on Bethlehem. Jesus was in all probability born in Nazareth. But the messianic expectation of the Jews was that he had to be the son of David and the heir to the throne of David. So there was great pressure to move his birth to the place of David's birth, which was Bethlehem. Uh, David was known as a shepherd boy, and that's how you get the shepherds into the story. 
And over and over again, you can find these these analogies that come out of the Jewish scriptures. The feeding of the 5,000, which is in all four Gospels, is very clearly identified with the Moses story who fed the children of Israel in the wilderness with heavenly bread called manna. You can go through the story over and over and over again and find these things. Now, clearly, the authors of the Gospels knew that that's what they were doing. They were writing for a Jewish audience who were familiar with the Jewish scriptures, Ah. and they were wrapping the story of Moses and the story of Elijah and the story of Samuel and the story of David around Jesus to sort of... No, all of those histories of Moses, Joshua, all those guys, all of their stories point to Jesus. So isn't it interesting? He sees Jesus' story in the Old Testament, and he uses that as proof against him. When actually... It shows that everything in the Old Testament is written and pointing us to Christ. Who is the Bible about? The Bible is about Jesus. Here, it's right in front of him, but in his unbelief, in his stubbornness, in his wickedness, because that's what this is, he sees this as proof against. He's calling the things that are right, wrong, and the things that are wrong, right. You'll know them by their fruit. Indicate the power of the experience that they felt they had in him. They were not literalists. That never would have occurred to them. (laughs) No, actually, read the documents themselves. The New Testament authors, the apostles, were literalists. They literally were proclaiming Jesus as risen from the dead, died on the cross for our sins. Told you, this stuff is just just outrageous and it's gold here here's the last little bit from him that's exactly right in fact i would say to read it literally reveals a profound ignorance of the biblical sources the jewish sources behind the gospel stories so if you read the bible literally it it shows ignorance on your part well actually it just shows his hard-heartedness and his refusal to come to grips with the actual evidence that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that his theories regarding the possibility of miracles and when these books were written and their intended and, and what they were intending to convey, it shows that he has hardened his heart and rejected. He is one who does not believe, does not have faith, doesn't trust in Christ, and he's outside of the Christian faith. Sad, but true. All right, we are up to that point where we're going to do our sermon review, so it's time for me to cue up our sermon review music. Uh, Let me grab that real quick here. It's from the good, the bad, the ugly. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. We compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, especially people who are supposedly leading Christian congregations, seeing if their preaching really is Christian teaching. Are they rightly handling God's Word? Are they proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for your sins, even if you've been a Christian your entire life? Or are they proclaiming works or the Jesus who is your life coach, who who wants you to have a, a better experience in life and to have better results? Yeah, we get a lot of that. Today's sermon comes to us from South Hills Community Church in Corona, California, a purpose-driven church 
uh, pastored by a guy by the name of Chris Songson, who's missed his calling and really should go back to being a motivational speaker and get out of the Christian pulpit because he doesn't know how to handle God's Word. His This is one of his Christmas season sermons entitled God Interruption. Yeah, that's the name of it. Oh, sorry, Holy Interruption. Without any further ado, here is Pastor Chris Songson. I believe this is the Saturday before Christmas. How many, just out of curiosity, just for fun, how many asked for, did anybody ask for a Snuggie? Be honest. A couple of you. How many? Matt, you really? <laughs> yeah, he's like Goliath over here and he wants a Snuggie. You're going to need like a whole, you know, Michelin thing. Um, how many own a Snuggie? Let me see. Anybody here? Uh, this guy. <laughs> All the tough looking guys own a Snuggie. That's fascinating. Fascinating. Awesome. We are, uh, what an exciting time. Uh, Christmas approaching in just a few days. And uh, Christmas has an incredible way of bringing some unbelievable moments. I'm sure many of you can remember moments for you when maybe you were with your children at Christmas or you opened up that special gift or whatever the case is. And there's that, there's that moment, that moment where you see their eyes open or the bike or whatever it is. There's those special moments. Well, we've been in a series all month long talking about holy interruption. And what it really is, is it's that one single moment that changed everything in our life. Matter of fact, it's that, it's that moment when Christ was born. When he was born 2,000 years ago, everything changed. How we worship, who we worship, uh, how we get to heaven. Everything changed when Christ came to this earth. It was the single moment that just changed everything. What we've been doing is just looking at it from a few different angles, you know, and, and, and people that lived in that day and kind of what that applies to us. And we looked at Joseph the first week. We're looking at Mary. And today we're looking at the shepherds. Now, there's only a few verses, although the shepherds get a lot of credit. They show up in every play in the world. There are really only a few verses on the shepherds and, uh, and, and what their life was like. And I want you to grab your outline and let's, let's take a look at the shepherds and what happened for them when Christ was born and what that means to us. Now, look with me at Luke chapter 2, verse 8 at the top of your outline. Let's all read it out loud together. Everybody loud and proud tonight. Ready? That night there were, good job, staying in the field nearby guarding their flock of sheep. Now, just in that one verse, we pick up a few things about shepherds. Number one, the shepherd's circumstance. First of all, they lived outside. The Bible says that they were outside guarding their sheep. In Israel, they would live outside most of the time, except for in the wintertime. Maybe they would go in at night, but they were always, always outside. They lived outside. The second thing about the shepherd is this. They walked in sheep stuff. Now, it's really poop, let's just be honest. Uh, intentionally, or they couldn't... It, it, is sheep stuff, like, so camouflaged that they couldn't possibly see it and they would have no choice but to step in it? Really, you, this is what you're getting from the Luke 2 account? But I didn't want to put that on an outline. So, I thought it'd be better if I just said it. No, um... They're walking around sheep stuff. So their job's not exactly the best job in the world. They're working the night shift. 
Okay. Now in those days, most of the time, those that owned shepherd, the sheep, they would have their son take care of everything, or they would have hired hands. Whoever it was that was working, whether it was son or hired hands, they were the night shift. They had the worst shift of everything. Okay. And let's go to the last one. Say it with me out loud. What is it? They had a less what? Respectable job. Traditionally in Israel, that was a very less respectable job. You could have worked for the government. You could have worked. Now, this is true. Shepherds, I don't even think the, the, the status of shepherds, I don't even think they could testify in a court of law. They were, they were on the lowest rung of, la, of the ladder there socially. I think below them would be prostitutes and maybe above prostitutes would be tax collectors. So you, the, the social strata there, you know, you have prostitutes and above them tax collectors and maybe, I don't know, are shepherds above or below tax collectors? Okay. And your point is for uh, 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 the government or you could have uh, owned a small store. There's so many other things you could have done, been a carpenter or whatever. But being a being a, uh, a shepherd was the most was one of the least respectable jobs. So they had the really less respectable jobs. They didn't they didn't have a lot of money. They were walking around in sheep stuff. They were working the night shift. Okay, Their life exactly wasn't some picture perfect thing so over here if you look at the sign it actually says the word beginning say it out loud with me what's the word okay so at the beginning of the story of the shepherds it's not exactly the greatest thing in the world but let's look at the end of the story okay let's drop all the way down to verse 20 okay it says the shepherds returned and let loose glorifying and praising God for everything they had heard and seen. It turned out exactly the way they'd been told. Okay, now, let me just follow follow me on the side, okay? Here we go. Okay, now, they're over here. They're walking around in sheep stuff. They got a night job. They got a less respectable job. Twelve verses later, only twelve verses later, in verse 20, at the very end, now they're jumping up, praising God. One translation says they were actually dancing. What happened? What happened from here over here, what caused them to go from there? Kind of not so. Uh, would it be Jesus? Yeah, I'm just stabbing at the dark here. No great circumstance to all of a sudden everything is just wonderful over here. Well, if you have a Bible, I want you to quickly go with me to Luke chapter two. If you got a Bible, go to Luke chapter two, and we're going to pick up verse nine, and we're going to see what happened from here over to here. Everybody get it? Good. All right. Verse 9. Come on, everybody smile. It's a few days before Christmas. Christ is about to be born. Act like a Christian. Smile, would you? Okay, eight of you. You know, uh, uh, one of my pet peeves is when somebody tells me how I should feel. You did? Good. The rest of you, well, you're getting nothing this year. Um, suddenly, verse 9, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. He said, I bring you good news that will bring joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord has been born today. Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. So here's the interruption. Their life at the beginning, they're just, you know, they're sheep stuff. They're working the night shift. They got a less respectable job. They're living outside. They don't have a comfortable house or bed to sleep in. And all of a sudden, 12 verses later, they're living, the, they're celebrating and exciting. What happened in those 12 verses? It was the holy interruption. All of a sudden, there was this announcement. Hey, the Christ has been born. The Savior has been born. And there was an announcement. But understand something and, 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 and help me on this part. It wasn't, now listen to me. It wasn't the announcement that changed them to joy. Some of you think, well, no, it was. 
It was Christ. But hold on. It wasn't the announcement. It was the reaction to the announcement that changed everything for them. What? He's working this into decisional theology? You've got to be kidding me. Not the announcement. What was it? Not the announcement. The what? The reaction is what changed everything. It changed absolutely everything for them. And all of a sudden, they went from kind of tough circumstances to full of joy because of one thing, the reaction. I have up here some Airborne. How many have ever taken Airborne before? My oh, Airborne. Oh, don't even get me started on that. Didn't they? Wasn't it proven that it does nothing? Everyone does nothing. My wife loves this stuff. She puts it on salads, everything. No, she loves this stuff. And she swears by it. And I don't like the way it fizzes and in the water and all that stuff. And that she'll be... And, 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 and nobody in the house likes it except for her. And so when someone's got a cold or someone starts it, you better take airborne. And then she always says this, you better nip it. But she doesn't... She says it like a commander. Nip it, nip it, nip it. You know, and... And we, and she gets these things out and she tries to feed it to you and puts it in your cereal or whatever. She tries to get this out. She really believes it. Now, I'm sure that the stuff works. However, it only works if you accept it. If you reject it, it doesn't do any good. The announcement, the Savior has been born. Oh, now, what they no. do. Oh, no, 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 no. This passage does not teach decision theology. They have to accept it. Uh, by the way, uh, let me take a look, another look at another passage in Luke, by the way. He's in Luke chapter 2. Let me see. Let me back this up to Luke chapter 1. I'm going to ask a very simple question, okay? Um, the question is this. I'll ask it up front, and then I'm going to read read the passage for you. When did John the Baptist make a decision to follow Christ? When did John the Baptist make a decision to follow God. When did when did he make this decision? I want you to listen carefully to the details from the passage just preceding the Christmas story that he's reading for us from Luke chapter 2. I read from Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 5 from the English sanctified version. We read, "In the days of Herod the king of Judea there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he and, his, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. By the way, side note here. All these guys who talk about their experiences of, of, of meeting angels and and you know high fiving the Holy Spirit and and having being taken up into the throne room of heaven and all that kind of stuff, they are liars. Why do I say that? Because in Scripture, every single person that has a true encounter with the divine in glory, that they fear grips them. 
Think about the Apostle John in the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. He sees Jesus Christ, the guy who, it is said of, of Jesus that John was the disciple whom he loved. Okay? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, at the night of the, of when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper for the first time, John is right there, literally laying up against Jesus. These guys were close. And John sees Jesus in his glory, and the text tells us that he falls over and, and, and he, he becomes as one who's dead. I mean, that's how gripped by this experience that he was. Okay? See, here we have Zechariah, similar situation. Not Jesus he's seeing, but in his glory. But he sees an angel, and fear falls on him and grips him. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, when human beings come in contact with heavenly beings in their glory, the usually the first things out of the word, out of the mouth of the heavenly beings is fear not. Why? Because they're going, And yet you got these lunatics running around claiming that they're they're seeing angels, they're going up into the third heaven and whatever and having all these experiences. And they talk about Jesus in such a way, it sounds like they go, hey, Jesus, you're my buddy here. Here, let's do a power punch and come here and pull my finger. Yeah, they're lying to you. That was all free, by the way. We continue. All right. So Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. Listen carefully here uh, to what the angel is instructing. Uh, the, the John, the Baptist, he's going to be great before the Lord. But John hasn't made a decision for Jesus. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. What? He didn't make a decision for Jesus. How can he be filled with the Holy Spirit? Maybe it's not us who makes the decision. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. But wait, when did he make a decision for Jesus? And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. How come the angel didn't say, if he chooses God, then he will do these things? The angel is speaking very presumptuously here, isn't he? Maybe it is, after all, God, who not only causes us to be born, but causes us to be reborn. Maybe it's God who destines. Maybe it's God who elects. Maybe it's God who chooses. Actually, that's what the scriptures teach. Nowhere do we find anything about this, about the, you know, the, his mission hanging in a balance waiting for him to make a decision and and respond to all these things that, that God wants him to do, but God's sitting up there in heaven wringing his hands going, oh, I hope John the Baptist makes a decision for me because <laughs> if he doesn't, we're, I'm not going to have somebody preceding me. Notice everything out of this angel's mouth lays out what John did in his life, and it sounds to me like John didn't really have much choice in the matter at all. We continue. 
do in those 12 verses is what makes all the difference. They go from having very tough circumstances to having this incredible joy in their life. Now, you and I, we come into this place and we have tough circumstances. There's no doubt about it. Every one of us have tough, tough circumstances in our life. We do. I, I, really, that's the big thing we suffer from is tough circumstances. What about our sin, Chris? Maybe you're not having them right now. I love what John 16, verse 33 says. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's the promise I don't like. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, you're gonna, your life's going to really suck sometimes. For you. Oh, praise God. We love you. It's hard. You know, it's very difficult. Sometimes marriage isn't going to go good. Sometimes things aren't going to go good with the kids. Sometimes things aren't going to go good with your finances. Sometimes things aren't going to go good. There's a tragedy. All of a sudden, life's going good. Something happens. There's... Oh, well, it's nice to hear a a purpose-driven preacher actually speaking the truth that maybe things won't go so swimmingly for you all the time. It's about time these guys confess the truth on that matter. There's these issues that happen in our life. The same with the shepherd. But how did they find joy in the middle of their circumstance? How did they find joy? And how do you and I find joy? What did they do? What was did those 12 verses reveal that you and I can do that no matter what crud our life delivers us, we can still find joy if we do what the shepherds did. Let's look at the, let's look at the first one. Ready? On your what? We can still find joy if we do what the shepherds did. When was the last time an angel appeared to you telling you that the Christ child was born in Bethlehem? Hightail it over there so you can go see. Oh, man. Your outline. Take a look with me on your outline. What did they do that we could do? Number one, I want you to write this in. Even with doubt, they moved towards Christ. Even with doubt. What? Even with doubt, they move towards Christ? What doubt? Hang on a second. He's got to be reading a different version of the Bible here. Luke chapter 2. Hang on a second here. Now in these days of creation. Okay, well, other way. Time came. Now, okay, verse 8. Luke 2, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping their watch by uh, over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Okay, no doubt there, fear. Hang on a second here. And the angel said to them, fear not. <laughs> Same theme here. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for, for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now notice that he's saying that not only is there a baby, but unto you is born a Savior. This is good news. Okay. Angels proclaiming the gospel. All right. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. So the baby is the Savior. That's what you get here. Suddenly there was an, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased and when the angels went away from them into heaven, yeah, where does it say the angels went to? In heaven. Yeah, I just want to point that out. Doug Padgett doesn't believe in heaven, and neither does uh, Bishop Shelby Spock. So where did these guys? Where did these angels go? I don't know. Okay, so when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, "Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened." Hang on a second here, Kai. Agenatahos, uh, just consulting this in the Greek here. 
And uh huh. Okay, right, right, right. I'm not. I'm not getting this. Hang on a second. And they. So at the tail end of it. Day. Um. What? There's no doubt here. Uh. Um. D L Theo men day eos no it doesn't sound like they have doubt there's there sorry in the greek there's this particle day in the translation which kind of implies not doubt but that they the urgency to go and see what's taking place here hold on a second let us go over to bethlehem with the particle day which means it's an emphatic particle indeed therefore now there's urgency to this uh so let us go see what has taken place and that the lord has made known to us Nothing in this uh, in this text. Okay, let me read it in the English. I have looked at the Greek. Okay, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Nothing in this text implies doubt at all. Nothing in this text implies doubt on the part of the shepherds. In fact, if you look at it in the Greek, it, because that particle day, it, it, it's, it, there's this excitement and emphatic, oh, we got to go now to go see this thing. Holy guacamole. Backing up the tape a few seconds. Hang on. Here we go. How did they find joy? And how do you and I find joy? What did they do? What was did those 12 verses reveal that you and I can do that no matter what crud our life delivers us, we can still find joy if we do what the shepherds did. Let's look at the, let's look at the first one. Ready? On your outline. Take a look with me on your outline. What did they do that we could do? Number one, I want you to write this in. Even with doubt, they moved towards Christ. Okay, by the way, we just I just looked at the text and looked at it in the Greek. There is not one indicator in the Greek that the shepherds had doubt. In fact, the Greek itself, because that, that particle, day, doesn't imply doubt. It implies excitement on their part and urgency to hightail it to Bethlehem. Even with doubt, they moved towards Christ. Let's look at verse 15. There's those 12 verses I talked about, okay? Because we go from circumstance to joy. Say it with me. What do we go from? From what? To what? To joy. Okay, look how they did it. Number one, even with doubt, they moved towards Christ. That's how they got the joy. Check it out. As the angel choir withdrew into heaven, the shepherds talked it over. Let's get over to Bethlehem as fast as we can and see for ourselves what God has revealed to us. Now, I, I want to point out something that I find hilarious. Maybe you won't. Okay. The Bible says, if you read the whole thing, the Bible says they were standing out there tending to the fields and a choir of angels came down from heaven to talk to them. And I love this part. And they told him, the Christ has been born. Go and see for yourself. And this is what the Bible says. If you look at the real translation, it actually says they, they don't know if they really believed it. They want. No, it doesn't say that at all. I just took a look at the Greek and translated it. And you're, you're not telling the truth, Chris. Do you know how to read Greek? Did they teach you that in seminary? Or did you go to seminary? Wanted to see for themselves. I find that hilarious. A group of angels appear to you and you're doubting? The text doesn't say that at all. There's nothing in the text in the Greek that implies that the, the that they had doubt at all. Hang on a second here. <clears throat> 
<sighs> okay, got to pull up one of my... Uh, let's see here. Uh, where is Lenski? Hang on a second here. Um, pulling up Lenski. Uh, Lenski is a... Um, He's a commentator. He's one of my favorite New Testament commentators. Hang on a second here. Uh, okay, there it is. Open that up. Okay. Uh, come on, come on, come on, come on. Okay, chapter 2. Here we go. Okay, uh, I need to get to verse 15. Let's see here. I'm on chapter 2. It doesn't let me just go straight to the verse. I have to find it. Hang on a second. That's 12. Uh, there it went. Hang on, hang on. Here it is. Okay. Let me see how he translates. And it came to pass when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let us go th through at once to Bethlehem and let us see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord made known to us. And they went hastening and discovered Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Okay. Here's his commentary on verse 15. He's what, here's what Lenski says. The angels did not merely disappear. They went into heaven, the abode of God, the angels and the saints Whence they had come, Luke's words read as if the angels, surrounded by heavenly light, receded upward until they were hid from sight. The two subjunctives are hortative. Let us go th uh, through and let us see. We have no English word for the urgent particle day, right, which indicates that the shepherds could not wait. Uh, so we use the word at once, partially to convey the sense and dia in the verb implies that the shepherds had to pass through the, some territory before they came to Bethlehem. N nothing there at all about um, doubt whatsoever in the part of the shepherds. And Lenski picked up what I picked up. The day there, the particle day, indicates that they couldn't wait. They got, there was a sense of urgency. we got to go now. No doubt at all. Yet Chris Songson here is just now making stuff up. And saying things about the text that are not in the text. Claiming that it's in the real translation, but I don't think he knows Greek. Oh, boy. That's like you standing in the backyard, you know, and you're raking the leaves, and all of a sudden, a choir of angels come and make an announcement. You're like, are you, are you for real? I mean, because I don't know if I really believe this whole thing. I think you would kind of believe it if it happened. I mean, just choir of angels show up. That kind of gets your attention, you know, just slightly, you know. And uh, but but for whatever reason, they didn't quite believe. Matter of fact, the Bible says they weren't even sure that they wanted to see it for themselves. They doubted. Now we all feel that at times. You're lying, Chris. The text does not say in any translation or in the Greek that they doubted. You are lying to your congregation. We all feel the doubt that, that in our life, like they maybe felt. You know, you, you felt it. Man, God, are you, are you, can you really be trusted with my finances? I, I don't know. I kind of doubt. Can you... Uh, Chris, you can't be trusted with God's word. You're lying here. Really be trusted with my marriage? I kind of doubt it. Can you really be trusted with my job situation? I you know, and we come to that place where we doubt. Can God really come through? I know what that's like. You know, it was uh, several months ago, back at the beginning of the year, many of you might remember uh, that whole thing that happened where uh, uh, the doctor called, they did a bunch of tests on me, and they called me when I was in Texas speaking and said, we think you got cancer. And I'm like, oh, praise God, you know. And so I'm like, okay, that kind of stinks. And so that kind of ruined my trip, you know, just a little. And so... 
I came back, you know, and, and uh, went through a bunch of tests three weeks later, found out, no, you don't have cancer, everything's fine. Never forget it. I told you this before, but never forget it. I, everybody was waiting for the answer, so I text my daughter, Dad doesn't have cancer, I just found out. Remember what she said back, I told you a long time ago? This is her response, one word, sweet. That's it. <laughs> Not like, oh, praise God, oh, God, I'm so glad you're alive, sweet, what are we doing tonight? You know, just... Real quick and to the point. Well, this past week, I went and I, uh, uh, I've been having this little extra skin on my uh, nose. This has been kind of growing. It's really weird. There's a little mark right there because they actually wanted to, they actually sliced it off to test it. But here's the funny thing. I'm sitting in the doctor's office, right? I'm sitting in the doctor's, in the doctor's office and uh, uh, with my son, and he's goofing off the whole time. We're having a good time. We're playing with stuff, and, and we shouldn't be, but, uh, you know, whatever. And uh, um, it's Kaiser. I'm paying my bill. I, I paid the copay. Um, so I'm sitting there, you know, and I'm, and uh, and all of a sudden, you know, we're just kind of sitting there, and and uh, I told my son, I go, this is the same doctor that told me I had cancer, and then three weeks later, you know, I didn't have cancer, and he comes in, the doctor, he looks at my nose, and he says, you know, we need to cut that little thing off there, and we need to we need to test it. It may be cancer. And my son, he walks out, and my my son looks at me, he goes, that guy only knows one word, cancer, cancer, and he starts making fun. You might not make it to the front door. You got cancer. He just. My, friends, my, my son's just kind of going off on a tangent. Now, in the middle of any tragedy of your life, whether a doctor tells you bad news or you lose a job or something happens with your marriage, doubt sets in. Can God really get me to the other side? I don't know if he really can. But here's what I love about the shepherds, okay? Even- keep in mind, he's lying here. The shepherds had no doubt whatsoever. This whole point of Chris's sermon is based on a falsehood even when they even with doubt they what you had to fill it in what is they what come on say it out loud with me even when they doubted they what okay here's the thing i love they doubted but they still moved towards christ they didn't have all their questions answered they weren't sure if it was real they weren't sure if it was all going to work out but one thing is for sure. There was no doubt in their mind, and they went with urgency to see the thing that the angels had proclaimed. Even in the middle of the doubt, they moved towards Christ. There wasn't, they were going to make a move. Yeah, I love that because it's action. You see, you're going to doubt. Can God really handle my finances? Make a move towards him, and let's see what he does. Law, and not even the real gospel. Finances? Christ didn't die on the cross for your 401k. He died on the cross for your sins. Can, does God really have a plan for my life? Make a move towards him. Get involved in serving. It, it might be that the plan for your life is to, uh, for you to become a martyr. And let's see what he does. Does God really want me to connect with other believers and grow? Does he, does he have more for my life than just going to church? Join a small group. Make a move. Oh, yeah. I'm sure the small groups at his church are just full of biblical scholars and pastors who are well-versed in the biblical languages and can help you understand really what God's word means. See what happens. Make a move. Even when they doubted, they made a move. They took action. And that's what made all the difference in their life. Now, did I mention the fact that this whole point is built on a lie? An absolute lie. The shepherds never doubted. There is nothing in the text that implies at all that they doubted. The second thing is this on the back of your outline is that they pushed past knowledge into experience. Could you write that in? Say it out loud with me. What? They pushed past what? 
Into what? Okay, now, they left running. Let's go what the Bible says now. They left running and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Okay, did they leave walking or did they leave what? Running, okay? And the baby lying... Yeah, because running is like the thing that everyone who doubts does. Lying in the manger, seeing was believing. See, they needed to see it for themselves, but at least they made the move. They didn't just stand back and go, I wonder if he can be trusted. No, 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 let's go do it. Even if we doubt... Let's do it. And then I love what this verse says. This They told everyone they met what the angels had said about the child. All who heard the shepherds were impressed. Now, here's, let me turn this thing around. Here's what I love is that they went, they had the knowledge. You know what? They were, they were from, from uh, uh, Israel. That means that they were Jewish males. And that meant that they had memorized most of the entire uh, Old Testament. They had memorized it. They had the knowledge of Christ. They knew about him. They knew what he was about. They knew everything about him. They had the knowledge. They knew about the prophecies. But the one thing that they didn't have was the experience. That's what made all the difference. They knew about Christ. They knew the prophecies. But the experience... That's what made all the difference for them. And what about me? I mean, I haven't seen Jesus. I haven't knelt at the manger. I haven't had this personal experience. How about the like the rest of us since Christ's ascension? None of us have actually seen him face to face. Oh, boy. They move from just saying, we're going to know about Christ to we're going to experience him. Now, hear me on this one. Joy comes not because they got their head around Christ, but because they got their arms around Christ. Great. What about me? I haven't touched him, seen him. My arms haven't been around him. Talk about shooting yourself in the foot, man. All the difference in the world. From just saying, well, I know who he is, to, no, I, I really know him. It's going from head knowledge to heart knowledge and saying, God, I'm going to experience you. That's what makes all the difference in the world when you push past knowledge into experience. You see, knowledge... I'm beginning to... Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I know this might sound like heresy to uh, many in America. Uh, this whole head knowledge, heart knowledge dichotomy, not thinking it's real. At least the way he set this thing up. No way. Knowledge doesn't work for a lot of things. Listen to me. Knowledge, not, you can have all the knowledge about skydiving, but there's, anybody ever skydived in here before? I've done it. I'm not going to tell the story. Nobody? I'm the only idiot? Okay, right over here. Me and you, brother. All right, let's get some coffee. Um, knowledge, you can have the knowledge of skydiving, but there's nothing like the experience of it. You can have the knowledge of Mount Everest or the knowledge of the pyramids of Egypt, uh, Chris, just, uh, I'm really curious at this point. How exactly am I supposed to have firsthand experiences with Jesus at this point? Seriously. How was this even helpful? But there's nothing like the experience of it. It's completely different. Okay. And, and why did these guys experience joy? Because they didn't just keep the knowledge. They went into the experience. <laughs> Oh man. <sighs> How is it that we've uh, we've traded actual pastors for guys that that basically proclaim ignorance? And uh, we uh, um a couple of days ago went to the gym 
with my daughter and I went and, and uh, she went up to the treadmill and I said, I'm going to go inside the sauna. I went inside the sauna and I, I, I go in there sometimes, but sometimes it just grosses me out, you know, just the sweat and, and people don't really wear everything they should. And, and it's interesting. And some guy had a towel on and he had a headset on while we were in the, in the sauna and I'm just sitting there and he's got a towel on and he's, and he's, and he's dancing to his me and he's kind of doing aerobics, you know, and he's doing this stuff and, and it was just a nightmare. And, um, and I, I felt violent. I mean, it was just, I feel like I got new prescriptions. My eyes got burned, but it was, and then, and then uh, I said, well, I'm enough with that. So I went upstairs. I went to, uh, uh, to be, uh, uh, on the elliptical and my, my daughter was over there on the stairmaster, kind of away from me, but, but I could see her and she was trying to get my attention, you know, and, and I kept looking over. I, I didn't really see her. And all of a sudden I saw her and she's like this. She's on the little thing and she's going like this. And I'm like, what? And I look down and there's this lady and she was so into the Stairmaster. It was hilarious. I mean, every move she was like, like this, you know, and, and she was on the Stairmaster. And she went, like they had like Diana Ross just moving on, you know, and, and my daughter's just making fun the entire time. And we had a great time there, but all these funny things that happened. Now I go to work out and I, and, uh, and I, and, and I try my best to eat right for this reason. Because I want to do my best to try to stay in shape. Now, understand something. I can read all the books I want about working out. And I can read and get all the knowledge I want about working out and and eating right. But it really doesn't matter unless I experience it for myself. Here's the fear that I have. I think that there's many of us in here that have the knowledge of Christ. But we don't have the experience of Him in our life. That's really a lot different. That goes from reading about him to really knowing him. I want, I want the experience. Matter of fact, I'm going to go, I'm going. How am I supposed to have this experience? What are you talking about? Now, I understand the difference between demon faith and biblical saving faith. Okay. Let's talk about this for a second. Okay. When we talk about saving faith, we're talking about really kind of three different things. You have uh, knowledge, assent, and then trust, okay? I think that what are the Latin terms are this? Notitia, uh, fiducia, ascensus, and fiducia, okay? Those are the Latin terms for those of you guys out there that are trying to figure out how to impress some of the chicks that are uh, that really like listening to theological dudes. Uh, if you could, you know, throw that around at a, you know, at a, at a New Year's Eve party, you might actually end up getting a date, you know, later in the year. Uh, again, it's notitia, sensus, and fiducia. This, this is how this plays out. Notitia would be knowledge or data. Okay, so for instance, okay, you can read the scriptures, and in the scriptures, you can find that here we have a historical account, eyewitness testimony of a guy named Jesus Christ who lived roughly about 2,000 years ago and who claimed to be God in human flesh, performed miracles, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and uh, and according to the eyewitnesses, rose again from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's all data. Okay, That's knowledge. Okay? A census is, I believe that data is true. Okay, you can, and that's uh, up to this point. We have a, the exact same quote faith that demons have. 
the demons know that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh and that he died and that he rose again on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. The demons know this is true and assent to the data and say, yep, that's exactly what happened. Right on. That's not saving faith. Because the data has a theological interpretation to it. What was Jesus doing hanging on the cross? He was dying for your sins. That interpretation has a very deep and powerful meaning and implication for your life. Saving faith crosses the line from merely saying that data is true to crossing the line to saying Christ died on the cross for my sins because I have sinned against a holy God. Daily, I have transgressed God's law and I deserve his wrath and eternal punishment. Saving faith has the the fiducia aspect to it that says Christ died for me. Nothing about experience here, okay? What I'm discussing here is completely different than what Chris Songson in his ramblings and lyings is discussing. I'm going on a journey starting January 1st, if you want to go with me. I'm going to go on a 365-day journey, and I'm not going to miss one day of having a time with Christ. Only for 365 days, really? What about the rest of your life, Chris? What about January 1st, 2011? Now, I have times with Christ all the time, but I get sick or I travel and two days, four days. You know how it is. But I'm going on a 365-day journey, and I don't care how sick I get. Wow, this sounds so brave of you. Or where I'm traveling, anywhere in the world or the country or whatever, I know one thing. I'm going 365 days. I'm I'm going to spend time with God every day. You know what I'm going to pray for you, Chris, is that God would actually open your eyes to the false teaching that you've been preaching and bring you to repentance and the forgiveness of sins for the false doctrine you've been teaching. That in spending 365 days in God's word, the scales would fall from your eyes, your eyes would be open, and you would repent. Now, that's because I've decided I want to go for the experience. And I challenge you, maybe the same thing. Maybe it's time for you to make that move of of that kind of thing. Or I don't know what it means for you to experience. Yeah, so he's doing that because he wants an experience. Nice. Christ. Maybe for some of you, it's experiencing Christ means that you go 365 days with me on the journey. Or maybe it means that you worship more with passion. Because when I look around the room, I got to be honest, there's quite a few of you that lack it. And passion is a choice. It's a choice to be that way. And sometimes we lack it, that experience that says, man, God, I just, I know you. I'm feeling you in my life. Yeah, if you don't have enough passion, you should feel guilty. How, how are you supposed to manufacture passion for the Lord when the songs you're singing don't have enough theological, biblical, doctrinal content to fill a thimble? How is that supposed to excite passion for Christ? How are, you, how, how are you supposed to have passion for Christ in your worship when your pastor twists God's word, barely teaches it, and lies about what it says? 
You know what? When you experience Christ, when, now listen to me. When you experience Christ, you can't keep your mouth shut about it. Because there's just this experience, this passion. Look what it says. It says, they left running and found Mary Joseph, the baby lion in the manger. Seeing was believing. They told everyone they met what the angel said. Now, let me just stop right there. Let me point this out. They went where? They went everywhere and told everyone about Christ. They couldn't keep their mouth shut about it. You know what? I'm always amazed by this. I'm always amazed at how much we can open our mouths for so many other things, but not so much for Christ. And this is a little bit of a challenge. I have a lot of friends that are in multi-level marketing things. I have a lot of people in our church, a lot of friends that I have that are in... What? Why does this not surprise me? Whatever, Monavi and Amway or this, that, the other thing, some sort of business where they're getting people. And, I, and that's awesome, man. They're making money. They're doing great. I think that's great. I really do. I think it's awesome. It's absolutely wonderful. But here's what I find amazing. I do a lot of speaking. So I'll go to them. They'll have me speak at something and I'll meet somebody from South Hills or somebody I know is a Christian. And they'll be like, literally 19 people I bought, you know, brought. And they're trying to bring them into their downline so they can make more money and do all this stuff and, and how many people they have inside their program and all that. And here's what I find amazing. Man, how quick they fill up rows at those meetings. I never see them fill up a row at church. Man, they talk to everybody about getting in their program. I don't see them talking too much about getting into the program of Christ. See, when experience takes... Pack your bags, we are going on a guilt trip. ...takes over, you're like the angels. You can't keep your mouth shut. It just happens. Let me ask you this challenge. What do you need to do today, folks, to experience more of Christ in your life? Uh, let me get, offer some practical advice for those who attend South Hills Church. If they want to experience more of Christ in their life, first thing they, they need to do is stand up, walk out the door, and go to a different church. May I suggest First Lutheran Church in Lake Elsinore, California. The pastor's name is Pastor Kevin Colander. Used to be my pastor. He is a fantastic, fantastic, humble preacher of the gospel. I guarantee if you attend First Lutheran Church in Lake Elsinore, California, it's 15 minutes down the 15 freeway away from uh, from Chris Songson's church, you are going to hear about Christ and him crucified for your sins Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. You're going to sing hymns that have deep theological, biblical, and doctrinal content, and you are going to hear about the forgiveness of sins for you. You want to have a deep, powerful, meaningful experience and deeper experience of Jesus Christ? Leave this church and go to First Lutheran Church in Lake Elsinore, California. That would be my first bit of advice. To move from knowledge, that's what made the shepherds go from circumstances to joy. Because they didn't just know about Christ anymore. They went for themselves and they got it. They said, we're not just going to get our mind around Christ. We're going to get our arms around Christ. And that made all the difference in the world. It's the experience. Everybody get it? Come on, everybody get it? Oh, I, I get it, but it's not a biblical point. In fact, it's just outright rank eisegesis. So the first point is a lie. Second point is complete eisegesis. Fun. Good. Let's go to number three in the final one. In the midst of the storm, they danced in the rain. apparently pastor songson's attempt at being poetic in the midst of the storm they danced in the rain luke 220 let's read it out loud together would you help me let's all read it let's put a smile on our face come on now here we go one two three the shepherds everybody together the shepherds returned and let loose 
glorifying and praising God for everything they had heard and seen. It turned out exactly the way they'd been told. I want you to circle that word returned. Here's what I find interesting. Is this. Now, what does the Bible say? What were they doing when they first showed up on the scene? What were they doing? Not a trick question. I don't know what they're doing. Playing with their twittering? No, they weren't twittering. What were they doing? They were being shepherds. They were out there in the field. And all of a sudden, they went from circumstances to this great joy in their life. Now, why did they experience that great joy in their life? You know, because they went from knowledge to experience. Because they went after Christ even when they doubted. That's how they got that joy. But here's what I love. When they got done with the experience, they returned. What did they return to? Listen to me. They returned back to the poopy stuff, back to the same job, back to the night shift, back to the less than respectable job, back to living outside. So understand something. Their circumstance didn't change. You know what changed? It was their attitude. It was their perspective. It was Christ inside of them. It changed everything. It changed everything. They returned. You're going through circumstance. And you might go home tonight and return right back to that same marriage. And that same, you might go another two weeks or four weeks or three months without the job. Without Anything here about repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Uh, that seems to be mysteriously missing. Without the money, without the whatever. Okay? Understand, they returned to the circumstance, but one thing changed. It was, it was, it was that Christ had touched their life. When they had connected with Christ, all of a sudden, they could return back to that. And in the middle of their cruddiness, could still find joy. Could still find joy. You see, you can be just like the shepherds. You can have this really stinky situation in your life. And if, if you have a, uh, an experience with Christ, you can have joy in the midst of your stinky experience. Well, technically, that's true. But aren't we kind of missing the whole point of of Christmas, the Christmas story here in Luke 2? For unto us is born a Savior. Why do we need a Savior? Not a Savior from our bad circumstances. Savior from God's wrath and punishment for our sins. Ay, ay, ay. My uh, friend, Rich Wood, he's a pastor in Oregon. And he was on a Christmas vacation with his family many years ago. And his, he had three, three boys, and one of them at the time was three years old. And they were playing outside in the snow. And they were playing on this little three-foot, two, three-foot brick wall thing. And they were all walking on it, but it was icy. And the little three-year-old boy slid out, and his head, bam, nails the edge of the brick. And, and the big old gash and blood just started pouring out. And uh, so they grabbed him and they, they ran down to some little doctor in the woods type of thing, you know, and found some little hospital medical center. And they sat him down and the doctor said, kind of whispered to the dad and my friend Rich and said, we're going to have to staple some of his head together. It's bleeding so fast, we're going to staple it. And so you're going to have to hold him because he's going to scream out. And uh, you can just imagine, you know, you know as, a, as a parent, you're like, I don't want any part of this. Let me know when it's over. I'm going to get a hot chocolate. Um but he's there, you know, and, and he's holding on to his son. And uh, my friend Rich said, I just started to cry. Tears were just, he goes, my son really wasn't crying. It was, but tears were just coming down my cheek because I knew what he was about to go through. And he goes, and I grabbed my, my son and I was holding him. And the doctor was getting ready in the back. And he said, my son looked up at me. He goes, three years old. And he looks up at me and he says, Daddy, don't cry. He says, don't cry. He says, I'll be okay. Jesus is with me. And... uh I love that. 
I love the little boy that just says, I know that I'm going to go through circumstances, but I'll be okay. I can return back to my life that isn't maybe all going well or the marriage or the finances because I know that he's with me. I know that I, that he's with me. Oh, man. And what if you have a fine marriage and your finances are doing just fine? I mean, seriously, I know lots of pagans that have pretty decent, happy marriage and financially they're doing pretty good. You got any good news for those people? Seriously. This text doesn't say anything about marriage and finances. It says unto us is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. It's the joy to know that he's with me. It's your choice. Benjamin Franklin he gave a speech one day about the Constitution. And when he, uh, by the way, Benjamin Franklin is not a Christian. When he stepped off the stage, someone asked him this question. He said, happiness, the pursuit of happiness. Come on, is that really real? And Benjamin Franklin responded this way. He said, the Constitution guarantees you the right to pursue happiness, but you have to catch it for yourself. Uh, that's not the gospel. Jesus Christ gives you the right to find joy no matter what you go through. But you got to catch it yourself. Oh, man. Oh, this is miserable. La, 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 la. Completely missing the gospel, too, by the way. you got to connect with him yourself. Good luck. Have fun. Hope you find him. You've got to experience him yourself. It's not enough just to know him. It's got to be about experiencing him. Let's pray together. Okay, we're done. Uh, yeah, sorry, Chris. Uh, we could do without your prayers. <sighs> let, let me go back to the text. I mean, it, there's such great gospel in this text. How, how, do you, how do you mess this up? In those decrees, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. And you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, 
glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured all of these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. If you are growing in your understanding of sound biblical doctrine, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the good news that Christ died for your sins, support us financially so that we can continue doing this important work. You can support us by visiting our website and clicking on the Join Our Crew button. Fightingforthefaith.com is our website. Click on Join Our Crew, six ninety five a month. And once you're done, click on the button that says access, click here to, for information to access the cove. We're getting ready to add a whole bunch of new stuff to it, and there's already a, a lot of stuff there. And we got two seminars, two webinars that we're doing in the month of January, so you don't want to miss that. All of our cove members get access to that at no extra charge. Fightingforthefaith.com. Of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond that, you can do so by clicking on the donate button. And sending in your contribution that way securely online using your web browser, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ on the cross for your sins. He died for you. Amen. Amen.